I was going to say, I had a six-hour Italian lunch yesterday with folks from Thailand, Myanmar. So, I mean, but we were schooled by our Sicilian friend that was in the yellow shirt the other day. Uh-huh. And so he put us on an assembly line and we ate and cooked for six hours. Whoa. <laughs> I don't think I've eaten since. <laughs> <laughs> Woo-wee. Anyone else have have a special weekend? Uh, it seems that our friends in California are getting some much-needed rain. Oh, that's so good to hear. It's been torrential. And you're in California, right? Me? Yeah. I, I spent a lot of time in California, but now I live in Las Vegas. So it's oh, not... okay. But Chris is. How could I forget? Is the, traveling. Are, is the big rain reaching all the way to Las Vegas? Uh, it's supposed to maybe tomorrow. It was actually supposed to hit a little bit today, but it hasn't. Um, but That's... it's also important to hit Southern California. I think the heavy rain's only in Northern California right now. Yeah, but if you have a choice, that's where you want it because hopefully it can turn into snow and then dump down. Well, and it's too it's too early for snow, isn't it? Yeah, we need to refill. Way too early. We need to refill Owens Valley. That's what we need to refill. Yeah, yeah, but we also need to fill, re- refill Lake Tahoe, so at least Lake Tahoe, Lake Tahoe oh, will get refilled. Uh, Tyler? Know. Yeah. There was a very interesting um, satire room on Sunday yesterday, which I found was brilliant. I left to the DM and back channel about how they, a bunch of DGENs and NFT space, super, super cool artists, they made the satirical room about Trump dropping his NFT. Yep. And they actually taught the whole room about immutability based on the fact that everyone thought it was real. And they were they were de- bringing up all the case scenarios of like what would happen, you know, like what would happen, what would make immutable versus mutable. It was really really fascinating. So many people like inside the room, it was like about 40 people actually learned about what it means to be immutable on the blockchain and decentralized by being able to understand like if Trump did sell an NFT and like what would happen. So it was really wild because it was at the end of it they were told everyone it was a satire. But a lot of people were like really coming up with these really great arguments about like what would happen if he did do an NFT and he did put it out there. Could someone deplatform it? Would that be fair? What does mutable stand for? What does immutable stand for? And it was really fascinating how a lot of people were like, like they were just like having aha moments about how decentralization can also help people with, in some ways, freedom of speech and not being, looking at them fairly as just the content and what their rights are versus judging them and making it that they can't do that just because of who they are and what they are. You know, Trump's back is, you know, uh, going up faster than any kind of... Uh, yeah, I heard uh, that too. I know Barron, they did say that Barron did an NFT back in March and he was really, they, he was in Clubhouse and it was really interesting because they said that he was, you know, he, he goes to some really private schools in New York and he probably gets bullied quite a bit. But he, they said that he was, it was something where they felt like he was really engaging with NFTs because he felt like it was a community he could engage in. But then like he just dropped off. So I guess, I guess his father or someone kind of pulled him off of it or whatever. I, I don't think he's getting bullied because he still has Secret Service protection, by the way. Yeah, well, I guess bullying doesn't have to be physical. It could be mental as well. Here we go. Where's our air horn? Happy Monday, everybody, October 25th. And here's the big headlines. Anyone 
it's a lot of good DMs, by the way, that we're going to get into. I'm I'm tempted to get into those first because there's some really unusually good DMs that people are sending this morning. But uh, we'll go through the top stories. There's actually not that many of them. I sent you a whole bunch in the last three hours on on, on two of our favorite stocks, Facebook and Amazon. There are really big stories, some from the Journal and some from the New York Times. So okay. I'm, there- I'm so- you you want to? Is there one that you think is particularly hot? Um. Well, I mean, the Facebook thing I think is a little bit like poured over a lot, so we can maybe skip that. It wouldn't be a, a first one you would draw uh, do. But the Amazon story, which is tremendous, because it really uh, it's very tech related, um, not just because it's Amazon, has to do with the fact that. Um, their internal leave policies, like people who go on disability leave or other types of leave that they're entitled to, that they're not handling the accounting correctly and people aren't getting paid. And part of the reason is because they've got three different pieces of software in there, uh, according to the article, Salesforce, Oracle, and Kronos, and they don't all talk to each other. And basically, um, and they're growing so fast. Basically, the article, if you read it, it's yep. like they, they're growing so fast they, they, they can't keep up with themselves. Yeah. And they, they, they okay, go, it's, go ahead. Tom. I've got the New York Times one here. And it's and there was a few others covering it already. And it says inside Amazon's worst human resources problem. A knot of problems with Amazon's system for handling paid and unpaid leaves has led to devastating consequences for workers. And really Gorgeous photo, uh, huge photo uh, at the top of the piece. I will tweet the piece out, and then I guess we should actually mention um, a bit of news that Clubhouse uh, announced on over the weekend. We should say um, that they're going to have pinned. What do they call it? Pinned links. Which is pinned links to the top of the right. So they're going to create a little space above the top row of speakers, which is usually where the mods might be, and below the title of the room. That mods, as far as I understand it, the mods will be able to pin links there of all different types, like the headlines that we read, for example, and one one. We'll have to figure out a workaround because I'm using Club Deck and hopefully Club Deck appears in the audience. Hopefully Pierre can chat with Clubhouse to enable that functionality inside of Club Deck so I can do it inside of Club Deck. Let's let's invite Pierre up here and messy. Oh boy. A whole bunch of folk, kids, friends coming in tardy. Michelle, you're tardy. Okay, Pierre. Are you there, Pierre? Mr. Pierre. Good morning. Good morning. Your mic is very quiet. Um, is it, it, would it? Would it be relatively pretty easy, I imagine? Uh, but they would need to make this new pinned links functionality available through an API, basically, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, we'll do that. I think we'll do that. Do, but do you think they'll... The question is, will they be embrace the idea of making that functionality available through an API to third-party apps? I think they will. Okay. 
Fingers crossed. I, I, I don't know. Well, I, I think, you know, let us, um, it's like everything else, you know, we've been able to implement yeah. everything they've done so far. So I, I yeah. don't see why it okay. should work. What, what, what it might do for you is add an added, you know, if you want to be able to pin a link and at the same time tweet it out, that might be useful. So mm -hmm. we'll try and go a, a bit beyond the, All right. the functionality there. Okay. Well, that would be super, super cool. Okay. So I want to, want to say thank you to Pierre as well. He's very, very resourceful. It always, um, always um, gets back to me. Um, yeah. Solutions. Yeah. Big yeah. Up yeah. Yourself, yeah cons you. Especially considering for those who don't know, Pierre builds a, an app called club deck, which is kind of like the dream come true for people hosting or modding rooms. Yeah. And, and it gives you dozens of crazy cool features that are, you know, the 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 traditional Clubhouse app is essentially designed for the audience and listener in mind, and and for the for a good amount of moderators who you know are just having normal conversations. But if you're if you're doing a a kind of a show, um, there's all you know, like these sound effects that I do, you know, uh, and the music that I play, and why it has high fidelity. And I mean, that's just one of again dozens of really cool functionalities that enable me to be kind of a super mod. And it's yeah, it's it's made to empower uh, hosts and, and mods, uh, and in like a superpower kind of way. And it's not even. And it's free, and it's not even they're his real business. He has his own real startup that he's doing, and this is what he's doing in his spare twenty, you know, ten percent time on the side, and um, and in to DJ's point, and it, he always uh, if you have any problems and you mess you back channel him, he, he's always there. Yeah, he's super fast on on the replies. Always straight straight on it. Yeah, yeah. and so. the the feature development, like this whole new pinned links thing that we're talking about it comes it's supposed to come out wednesday in clubhouse i suspect it might be live by over the weekend in club deck like that's how fast they in implement stuff and as he says not only will they implement the same feature parody as it's called like the same functionality they'll even do it one better and make it so that when you pin the tweet it also tweets the tweet and you know to highlight again uh, how he kind of goes above and beyond so would they would they do the reverse as well? So if you're seeing a tweet, you can reverse it and put it back into the Clubhouse link. I don't know. I can't read his mind yet, but we're working on that technology as well, so that I can read his mind. <laughs> but I'm just playing with you. And anyway, back to the main headlines. And by the way, that news was revealed live on stage at a little conference uh, that The Verge was hosting called On The Verge, which happened to coincide with their 10th anniversary of the tech blog, The Verge. It was in New York City at Spring Studios. And uh, Paul and Maya from Clubhouse were on stage being interviewed by Ashley from The Verge, who you might recall was the person who wrote the uh, rather hit Pete hit piece that I went on a tirade about of, you know, about the uh, Clubhouse Creator Accelerator program. And Tyler Steph gave a shout out to Tech News Around the World during that. Oh, cool. Yeah, somebody DM'd me. Yeah, you mean in the town hall recently? 
Yeah, in the town hall yeah. yesterday, she gave a shout out. Yeah, they did on the blog as well, that where they announced the feature. But the they announced this was kind of interesting that Ashley, who wrote the essentially a hit piece about Clubhouse, was now interviewing Paul and Maya on stage, and. It's fun to, you should watch that little interview, by the way, uh, and especially if you've never seen Paul do an interview, because he, he gives miraculously good interviews, and it's one of his uh, superpowers, for sure, and um, and he's just so infectiously positive, and Ashley was not at all, she's being, you know, kind of salty, kind of uh, New Yorker-ish, let's say, and, uh, and she, you know, you, you just, he... He he even was even better than his normal um, endlessly enthusiastic. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Contagiously enthusiastic and optimistic self. And he she just was not going to win that that battle. <laughs> like her her kind of salty demeanor was uh, not able to uh, diminish in any way his endless enthusiasm. And anyway, so. Kudos to uh, Paul and Maya and the Clubhouse team for putting that together. However, that came about. That was kind of fun to watch. If you know the context that she had written a hit piece just you know a couple of weeks prior, and now she's interviewing them. And you know when you get everybody on, you know same the same point gets made about Clubhouse, where in 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 traditional tweet land or you know in traditional social media. You have people kind of jabbing, but when you get on stage together, then you get to really see who has uh, truth on their side, so to speak. And it was very evident that uh, she was not going to be able to engage in her, uh, um, she was not going to be able to even initiate a conversation around anything negative because Paul was going to and Maya had the had the royal flush of you know facts and and charisma and all of that on stage. So uh, it was fun to watch from that context. Tyler, yeah, I didn't see the whole interview because I usually take the weekends off mm -hmm. offline. But I did see a piece in which um, you know Paul and Maya were talking about the growth, and I, I thought it was such a spades move because. They didn't only they really talked about the growth in the international markets, mm -hmm. which is something that I don't think that Ashley right. probably knew. Into, right? right. So she was looking at it from a U.S. centric standpoint. Right. Like, oh, there was so much hype. Right. And, you know, what happened? You know, people yep. aren't talking about it. It's like, oh, by the way, we have rooms with thousands of people. That's in right. Five countries. Yes. <laughs> so yeah. Thought, oh, yeah. That's because funny. the hallway, the hallway sorted by your language and and I'm I'm not interested in that, and I'm interested in uh, the international rooms. I like hanging out in the international rooms, and my good and be living in Thailand, the, the Thai rooms are freaking massive. And then having lived in Japan, the Japanese rooms are freaking massive. And then you go, the Middle East rooms are amazing, and then and honestly, they're bigger. They're and it's more yeah. that this app is as meaningful as it is in English. I think it's it's true gift to humanity is what it does in the non-English rooms and in these international rooms and it's and it's and it's hard to even uh, express how truly uh, uh, a beautiful it is to 
countries who happen to live under authoritarian regimes uh where you know it 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 plays a role you know that's those people and truly appreciate in a way that you know western countries i don't think can um anyway yeah, and just Tyler, one quick you... point to the language piece. I've noticed in the past couple of days that I got a prompt, you know, saying, oh, your languages are English and Thai. Is that correct? So I don't know if it's based on my oh, yeah. geolocator. But oh, totally. I had never, I'd never experienced that before. I don't know. It must have been. Yeah, Friday but I, just, you're right, though, that uh, journalists who've, uh, you know, are, are writing pieces about, you know, that clubhouse might be overhyped or whatever because you know uh mc hammer's not here uh yeah try telling that to people in authoritarian countries who are using this in a way that you know it's this is like water to uh, you know people living in a food to people in a famine this is like hard to express how meaningful an app like this is to people in in you know the other parts of the Tyler, world do yes you I mean. speak thai my thai is terrible like really, really, you know, not good. Oh, okay. There was just a there was a really talented Thai artist. Speaking of what you just said, there's a very talented Thai artist that's come into the rooms and he doesn't speak English and he's got amazing <coughs> artwork. And we're trying to get him exposure because his art is just brilliant. And I thought that you might be able to help him because you're in Thailand. But well, because he's really jumping in the NFT rooms. And his work is uh, stunning. There's a. I mean, can you connect me with him? Because I know quite a few Thai artists, um, and I'd love to be able to help support. Or there's well, well, Lakisha. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. No, I was asking if you could connect me with him because I know quite a few people in the Thai art community. Yeah, but he's actually coming into the English. That's what he wants. Like he wants to come into the English NFT rooms, like what Tyler just said about the large rooms of Thai. Right, right, right. So Thai. I know, I know both Thai and international. So when I say Thai, not Thai national exclusively, but people within the arts community within Thailand. You mean, but within that speak English as well? Yes. Okay, yes. got it. Yeah, there's a weird thing that happens between Thais and and foreigners who've lived in Thailand for a long time. There's actually a weird hybrid of Thai and English that we speak with each other, where we know what English they know, they know what Thai we know, and we're able to communicate. It's kind of strange. Um, anyway, the the top story today, October twenty fifth, is from the New York Times, and it says internal. Oh, by the way, Cheryl DM'd me and says she's out way outside of, uh, of town in a bad signal area. So she, uh, her signal's too weak to join us today. So that's why anyone who's curious, uh, I know everyone's wondering, there's a notable lack of uh, insult, you know, unintentional insults going on here today is because Cheryl's got bad signal. A level of... Oh, I have to tweet out that clip, Tyler. It was quite funny from the other day between Trader Joe, Chris, and yourself. Yeah. So the top story is New York Times. It says internal documents detail Facebook's struggles with violence inciting content in India, including failure to des designate some politically connected groups as dangerous. And by the way, oh, that this gets very interesting. Oh, my God, I got to play this. Um, first of all, uh New York Times needs to have a full-on um, 
what do we call this transparency uh, statement at the front of their article here when if they say anything about New York Times um, check this out so the New York Times was hiring for um a job you know somebody to write for the for the New York Times in India and their job posting just what there's there's one of the biggest news outlets in in India is called Weon W-I-O-N and oh my goodness you have to listen to what they how they covered this New York Times so before I if New York Times is going to write about India you need to know fundamentally how incredibly slanted the New York Times is against India. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Like, as bad as slanted as they might seem in American politics? Holy sweet Jesus. Look what they do in India. Oh, wow. This is wild. I have to... It's a, It's the minute... The video is seven minutes long. I got to get to the main bit of it, but essentially they had a job posting like, Hey, we're trying to hire in the New York times. And you would think that it would be a normal job posting of like, we're looking to hire people apply here, blah, blah, blah. No, not at all. It's so crazy in its slant that it doesn't even, you, you forget that it's even a job posting. Cause it's just a, a long rant, a, a huge, incredibly slanted political raving. And, and the mainstream media in India called it out. So let me, here, just give this a quick lesson. What do recruiters look for when hiring a candidate for any position? Qualification, experience, perhaps a good reference. This is the norm. And then there is the New York Times, the newspaper that claims to seek the truth. It says so on their website, seek the truth. Right now, they're seeking a correspondent in India. What is the job description? The person must be anti-establishment, anti-Modi. And this is not our interpretation. The New York Times spells this out in as many words. Let me read out the job description for you. Mr. Modi is advocating a self-sufficient muscular nationalism centered on the country's Hindu majority. That vision puts him at odds with the interfaith multicultural goals of modern India's founders. And just in case you're wondering, I'm reading from the so-called job description of the New York Times. It's not an opinion piece, although it sounds like one. These scaling lines are designed to attract a candidate who will fill the role of a business correspondent for the New York Times, not an opinion writer, mind you, a correspondent. Slight problem. Reporting requires objectivity. What the NYT is looking for is a candidate who looks at every story through a prism of prejudice. The job description says, and I'm quoting again, under Narendra Modi, its charismatic prime minister, India has moved to rival China's economic and political heft in Asia, drama playing out along the tense border and within national capitals across the region. What kind of recruitment ad is this? When was the last time you saw a recruitment ad like this? At least I have never seen something like this. This edit piece slash job ad was posted four days ago. But the NYT's anti-India bias is much older. I'll give you a sample. In March 2019, the New York Times wrote, after India loses dogfight to Pakistan, question arises about its vintage military. Absolute fiction. The fact is... So then she goes on to give examples of how the New York Times has historically been very slanted in India. But um, 
so anyway, I preface that because this headline is about Facebook's doing business in India, and it's from the New York Times. So we have to be know the New York Times is the fuller. I share this in the in the spirit of giving fuller context about how the New York Times itself is not interested in covering the news in India. It has a very specific slant in how it does news in India. So it says that internal documents detail Facebook's struggles with violence inciting content in India, including failure to designate some political um, connected groups as dangerous. Internal documents show a struggle with misinformation, hate speech, and celebrations of violence in the country, the company's biggest market. Okay, uh, a face, it says on February 4th, 2019, a Facebook researcher created a new user account to see what it was like to experience the social media site as a person living in Kerala, India. For the next three weeks, the account operated by a simple rule. Follow all recommendations generated by Facebook's algorithms to join groups, watch videos, and explore new pages on the site. The result was an inundation of hate speech, misinformation, and celebrations of violence, which were documented in an internal Facebook report published later that month. With a quote, following this test user's news feed, I've seen more images of dead people in the past three weeks than I've seen in my entire life total, the Facebook researcher wrote. Okay, well, if that researcher is from not from India or not from the developing world, yeah, generally in the developing world, you don't see a lot of dead people uh, in news. In the developing world, it's not as uncommon. It's a bit more common. So I don't know, you know, it would be interesting to know who this test user is. Uh, the test user's news feed became a near constant barrage of polarizing nationalist content, misinformation, and violence and gore. The report was one of dozens of studies and memos written by Facebook employees grappling with the effects of the platform on India. They provide stark evidence of one of the most serious criticisms levied by human rights activists and politicians against the world-spanning company. It moves into a country without fully understanding its political impact on local culture and politics and fails to deploy the resources to act on issues once they occur. With 340 million people using Facebook's various social media platforms, India is the company's largest market and Facebook's problem with the subcontinent present an amplified version of the issues that it faces throughout the world, made worse by the lack of resources and lack of expertise in India's 22 officially recognized languages. The internal documents obtained by a consortium of news organizations that included the New York Times are part of a larger cache of material called the Facebook Papers. They were collected by Francis Hogan, a former Facebook product manager who became a whistleblower and recently testified before a Senate subcommittee about the company and social media platforms. References to India were scattered among documents filed by Ms. Hogan to the Security Exchange Commission in a complaint earlier this month. The documents include reports on how bots and fake accounts tied to the country's ruling party and opposition figures were wreaking havoc on national elections. They also detail how a plan championed by Mark Zuckerberg to focus on meaningful social interactions or exchanges between friends and family was leading to more misinformation in India, particularly during the pandemic. Now, so interestingly, they've the Francis Hogan documents where she stay once she realized she didn't want to work at Facebook any longer, she stayed an extra month to extract these documents, thousands of documents from 
the whole organization. And you would think, wow, how, how does that work? Uh, well, Facebook is totally transparent internally. If you are the janitor, you have access to all the documents, millions and millions of documents across tens of thousands of Facebook team members who work at different companies like WhatsApp and Instagram, etc. Oculus, whatever. It's, it's a huge open searchable database. Obviously, they have lots to hide if they've been organizing that way since the beginning, right? So the Francis, you know, took as much as she could uh, of documents through this system. And now those documents, there's so many of them that it's the Wall Street Journal says, you know, we, we don't have the resources to even go through all these documents ourselves. Let's go ahead and share all of these leaked documents with our friends at the New York Times and other media who we think will, you know, take the same kind of a, uh, uh, activist agenda that we have. And, you know, we can mutually attack our biggest financial competitor, which is Facebook. So they're now branding this as the Facebook papers, a la the Panama Papers. Or the Paradise Papers, you know, the, the big data leaks of people that have uh, that are hiding money all around the world. Right. As if as if Facebook, as if as if like this is on parallel or something. And it's clearly sh starting to show their agenda in doing this. So what's interesting is that The New York Times is writing about a researcher inside of Facebook do they call it a researcher? A Facebook researcher created a new account and did this thing. Okay. Um, why not show... That's based on a document, right? Why not show the document so that we can decide for ourselves what that document really shows? Because Facebook said, you'll remember, the VP of communications for Facebook came out saying, we know that you're... You're now collaborating in your jihad agenda to sabotage us, your biggest competitor. We know that. And you're going to find lots of documents from people whose opinions are not the opinions of Facebook. We have 100,000 employees. We, as a company, have particular views and comments that we make publicly. We have a culture internally where people spout all kinds of crazy nonsense endlessly. Right. And those crazy comments from, you know, Susie in in the marketing department who everybody hates at Facebook. If you find her documents, you're going to think, you know, that you're on to something hot. And her her presentation she gave at El Pollo Loco 10 years ago actually has very little relevance with how things operate today inside of Facebook. So we're letting you know. Because we know you're working on this big Facebook papers, you know, camp agenda jihad that we are here to answer any questions and provide any additional context about any documents you find from some meeting they had, uh, you know, behind a Walmart 20 years ago. So the, Wall the, New York the New York Times has found a document that they felt thought was worthy of writing an article about. And we just read it right here just now. This one about, you know, how... Uh, so some researcher made a fake account in India and subscribed to every possible thing that Facebook recommends, which, by the way, I, I doubt any of all the three billion Facebook users. I highly doubt anyone's ever done that, like organically. I, I, I would find it a little surprising if any user, organic, real user in the history of Facebook was like, oh, 
you're recommending these hundred things. I'm just going to follow all of those. That isn't a normal use case. That isn't reflective of how a Facebook account will actually look. So I don't know how useful that exercise is. Right? You don't go onto a social media platform and follow everything they suggest following. If you did that in Clubhouse, you would be following all kinds of people who are totally irrelevant to your interests. Completely, utterly irrelevant. Similar on Twitter, similar on Facebook, especially on Facebook. So uh, I don't know that we can really draw much from that little fun thought experiment that that researcher had. Uh, but the New York Times is drawing something from that, which is that that person basically is criticizing their own algorithm by saying, hey, if you follow everything that was recommended in India, you end up seeing a barrage of, and this is the quote, a barrage of polarizing nationalist content. Okay, well, now let's jump back to the little video I played at the beginning. Because when they say polarizing nationalist content, that's, that's their big claim. The big, the big smoking gun in this article is that, the, the, here it is, here's the quote put right into the middle of the article. The test user's newsfeed has become a near constant barrage of polarizing nationalist content. Nationalist means Modi, who we just, I just demonstrated for you. I brought the receipts and the evidence that the New York Times fails to mention in this piece that they are incredibly, notably anti-Modi. And that, and I brought the receipts that in their own job listing for hiring correspondents in India, we are looking for people who are completely, clearly, definitely anti-establishment, anti-nationalist, anti-Modi. So is, is this really a surprise that the New York Times is upset that uh, now we know why they have an interest in this highlighting this. They're trying to highlight that Facebook internally is potentially leading people to become more nationalistic. At least they're, they're being, according to them, being exposed to a barrage of polarizing nationalist content. Okay, but they, they're not interested in exposing their own biases and in how they would love, what they would prefer people in India to be exposed to. No, and never mind that we have no idea who this researcher is, what their role in the company. Maybe they were fired for being an idiot five years ago. We don't know. I would think that's kind of relevant. And I would think if this person was actually a high-profile person, the New York Times would be saying, ah, you know, some very high-profile person with an impressive title found this stuff and not just obfuscate it and say just some random researcher. And I think if the document that they pulled this quote from would benefit them, they would share the whole document, which leads me to believe, because we've seen this in pr prior examples of the New York Times doing this, they're cherry-picking out a sentence out of a much bigger document. And that's what they did in this article. They literally took a screenshot of one sentence out of a document. Why not show the document? Because, as we saw in previous examples, the rest of the document doesn't help the narrative that they're trying to create. So, New York Times, call me suspicious about anything you have to say about India, first of all. And call me suspicious when I see you take a screenshot of one sentence of a document 
and not show the document. Because historically, when you've done that, it's because you're trying to cherry pick data from a document who any sane individual will realize that that document doesn't support the narrative that you're trying to promote. And t Tyler, about India, India is not one country. India is 28 countries within a country. It's a bit like United States. So right. I think that should be taken into context. Yeah. Well, I also like the irony that the New York Times in this piece is going out, kind of going a little off the track to make the point that Facebook is going into an area uh, without knowing the, you know, the full context of what's really going on on the ground. Well, New York Times, aren't you doing that by going into these documents of all of these Facebook employees and writing articles about uh, uh, one one pay one paragraph out of a paper uh aren't you also going into facebook land aka like india are you going into this huge pile of documents not half cocked not really knowing the context of what the the meetings and debates internally which which with which that document and what it really means inside of facebook you're doing ex you're doing exactly what you're accusing facebook of doing which is putting your fingers in your ears and don't want to know the full context of what that document really represented in, internal to Facebook and how the company really felt about that document. Facebook might totally have, there might be, as usual, as we've seen previously with your other leaks, turns out there's actually really good, uh, important context around this issue that really puts it into the proper context that you're, that you have access to by contacting Facebook. And Facebook says, we're available when you find a document that from five years ago that somebody wrote on the back of a napkin and dropped in the parking lot. We're happy to provide you the additional context of wh how that document fits into our bigger gestalt here at Team Facebook. And feel free to ask us any questions. And you're not. There's no mention of, any, of the New York Times reaching out to Facebook to be like, hey, we found this document. What does this mean? How was this addressed? We know, can you help us understand this? No, you made no effort to do that. And they've rolled out a red carpet invitation for you to do exactly that. And you're not interested in that because you know if you did that, you would have no article to write. You have an agenda. You're on a jihad. You and your friends at the Wall Street Journal and Vice are on a jihad. And you're trying to financially sabotage your main competitor who's making life very difficult for you economically. <laughs> It's becoming more and more transparent because, you know, what is their interest in what Facebook's doing in another country? You know, it's really and, just now self-preservation. And, and can why? I, can I just? Yes, Meg, one second. And on a final thought. And where it, where is your equal uh, fervor in addressing what the hell's happening over at TikTok? You did write a You've written... Now, dozens and dozens of pieces, a very attacking in, in your quote unquote Facebook paper jihad against Facebook without, and you've written one TikTok article in that time, which was a whole, uh, a full on hot oil massage piece for TikTok. Meg, go ahead. About the benefits Thanks. of TikTok in schools. Correct. Um, I'm sorry, Meg. Go ahead, Meg. So. Just to, to provide some of that larger context, and, and maybe I'll tweet this out in a sec, 
um, about a year and a half ago, about 40 civil rights organizations wrote a letter um, denouncing Facebook because of their failure to address hate speech in India, and specifically their failure to address anti-Muslim campaigns that were being launched through WhatsApp and through Facebook uh, to urge people to engage in violence against Muslims. And as a result of these online campaigns that were led by Modi's BJP party, uh, dozens of people were lynched. So there's really no question that this has happened. I don't think we should be disputing the fact. Great. And you know and what? Facebook, and yet, yeah, Facebook you know, has failed to rein in. Rein in oh, my goodness. <laughs> did, so, did, did, did atrocities happen prior to Facebook? Did people attack other cultures prior to Facebook, or is this a new uh, is this a new phenomenon in human existence? It's not a new phenomenon. It doesn't mean that they don't have a responsibility to, to take. It, no, they know? don't. Legally, they exactly. don't. It's called Section Two Thirty. They're not responsible to monitor what's going on. Well, I think and the, and the, the by the way the the, we, the paper companies who print who produce the paper. That the the signs that the KKK, the, ah, the the wood company who provided the wood that that the KKK made for the crosses, that they burned in front of houses, the the lim, the the, the uh, timber company, the lumber company who made that wood is not responsible for what the KKK did with that lumber. They are if it's if they're amplifying it. It's one thing if it's a neutral platform, but Facebook is not a neutral platform. Well, we then, then what you need to do is talk to the lawmakers and tell the lawmakers, hey, you need to change the laws and don't. Yeah. Currently, Absolutely. you've made Facebook not responsible at all. They have no legal responsibility Absolutely. at all. That's part of what journalism does is they report this stuff so that lawmakers then take action. Fine. Then your problem is with the lawmakers. Absolutely, I have a problem with the lawmakers, right. but I think wait, let's not dispute the actual facts of the case. Right, and, and let's recognize historically, people have had violence against each other since the beginning of time. It's called Cain and Abel, right? The first story in the Bible, right? Now, are, was Facebook responsible for Cain killing his brother Abel? No, this has been going on. These atrocities have been going on historically since the beginning of humanity, and the question is. The paper, the posters that people used to write, uh, you know, and post around town and hand out leaflets and books. Is Gutenberg responsible for all of the atrocities that happened after he created the printing press? Yeah, not the same thing. It, it's a false. Very, well, those two are incredibly similar. As somebody who who took a you know a study uh, at UC San Diego on precisely this issue, it's incredibly relevant. All right. Well, let's let's agree to disagree. But I'm going to tweet out the story now so other people can read it. So the the the, the, the printing press, um... the printing press could you could argue was incredibly responsible for bring, amplifying some people's views and not others. But Tyler, I think what, what, one of, one of the things somebody may be talking about the, the difference is the printing press once it was out there as a device. They couldn't control it anymore. It's out there. People right. are doing what they do with it. Right. Facebook, has, because of the algorithms and everything, and they, they have more control about what goes through the platform. Right. And I think, I don't, I don't want to put words in Meg's mouth, but I'm going to assume she's not just talking about legal responsibility, but ethical and moral. But, you know. Do you want, do you, now, should, should Mr. Gutenberg become the Supreme Court on what is be allowed to be printed on that device? This is what you're asking about Facebook. Should, is Facebook a moral or ethical, 
Uh, well, I'm, the I'm not saying that's what you're asking. This, it's what I'm asking, Meg. This is, a, this right. is the question you should be asking. It oh, well, should. I disagree. Sh I, oh, well, I think, you can uh, disagree I'm with that. Should Facebook, should a technologist, should a geek in his bedroom at Harvard be the moral ethical police for what's allowed on his platform? I think he should be responsible for designing an algorithm that drives hate speech in a way that's different from just something people can pick up and buy and choose. That's very different from having your information environment completely designed in order to generate advertising dollars. It's a whole different scenario. I was just going to ask quickly, um, as much as people can disagree with the word Facebook does or how the algorithm works, but I'm just wondering what is your perspective or thoughts on the fact that the New York Times or Wall Street Journal are clearly biased uh, in the way they've been covering this for more than a month and weeks. So I'm just wondering if anyone has any thoughts on that. As much as I think it's fair to disagree with the way Facebook works or even how they manage your algorithm ranking, if that's also concerning or not at all. Here's a quote from the article. Uh, Hate speech against marginalized groups, including Muslims, is on the rise in India and globally. Uh, says Mr. Stone from Facebook. So we are improving enforcement and are committed to updating our policies as hate speech evolves online. Yeah, it's happening on every app, perhaps somewhat equally. By the way, some are saying that it's now moving to the encrypted apps like Telegram, where they can do this, you know, under darkness. And so what are you going to do now that these groups who are, you know, using technology... Like, like printing presses and telephones and, you know, printed paper and uh, messaging apps and now encrypted messaging apps where they can now have a really interesting tool, which is encrypted messaging apps, to communicate, to coordinate, to attack their uh, political or ethnic opponents. Will Telegram, who's totally encrypted... Do you, are, are, would you like Telegram to not be encrypted so that you can police? Should Telegram now be responsible for what's being said inside of Telegram? Because I can assure you, the, the, we saw the reports. I will pull up the receipts if you like, that this is where they are all now going to. Because Facebook is making it more difficult for people to do these kinds of things on Facebook. They're going to Telegram where they believe it's encrypted. And to some extent it is. And Okay, great. So you just pushed every all of the people that you didn't like with how they were using this one particular medium into another medium where you're not able to see what they're doing. And the question is, should that medium, in this case Telegram, be responsible for the genocide-ish behavior that they're enabling on their platform? I think these are two ends of the spectrum. You either select everything or you select nothing right and i think that some of the social media uh, platforms basically stream all the messages that come at you they don't select it they don't preferentially put something in front of you and i think some of the bigger ones and facebook is an example they have too much volume to do that personally i think it's because they cannot scale to the point where everybody sees every message that yeah. they are like you know that right so they they necessarily have to select something and the moment they select, they are now part of the amplification because now they're serving an editorial pur purpose. Right. They're not just putting what people out put out there. They're actually selecting what you get to see 
And that's a responsibility. And I applaud them for all the work that they're doing to try to fix that. And I think time's on their side, actually. I think they will fix it at some point. So here's, However, in the meantime, yep. Yep. Yeah, I mean, in the meantime, they are, they are, they are deciding what I get to see. And that decision should come with some responsibility. Yes and no. Here's the headline from Wired. I don't know, Tyler, if I can just add something quickly. One second, Michelle. The the headline from Wired this weekend is, I used Facebook without the algorithm and you can too. Making your newsfeed chronological is an enlightening look at what's really happening on the platform. You don't have to use their algorithm. You've You've chosen essentially to do that you have the option to not have their algorithm at all no that's not correct it is correct you, re, would you like I, me to read the article I have, done, I have done it i don't need to read the article uh-huh. when you when you when you when you flag it as the article implies or suggests it does not show you everything that you see you do see chronologically but it is still selecting Furthermore, simply because there's just too many. If you have evidence of that, let's let's go ahead and we can break some serious news. If you have any evidence of that, I, I absolutely do. Because then please send it to me. That I ne- but you can do it yourself. That you there are there. Are please show me how to do it myself. I'm going to yeah. Just, Great. I was there actually just going to confirm that it's possible to have a non-personal. Maybe I can finish this. On the, I I honestly I just wanted to add some. Like shed some light to the product. I believe I pretty much know where, how it works. You can have a non-personalized experience um, within Facebook if you adjust your settings. But there are friends you will never see their posts of, right? So you do see them chronologically. However, that chronological stream does not include all of your friends. They still select the friends from, the, from whom you're going to hear. That's point number one. Point number two. I, I don't understand. I don't understand your point there. That doesn't seem to make sense. Okay, so my point is that if I have two thousand friends, yep, there's no way they're going to chronologically show me everything my two thousand friends are posting. Yes, they do. That's the whole point of the chronological feed. They don't. They don't try it. You will. There, there are friends you will never hear from because they're not they posting. Can't. If they post, they do. That's the whole point of chronological no, feed. No, they do no, no, because no, if you right, go to their face, if you go Facebook. to their pages, like, you will see that they have posted, but you didn't see them. I'll give no, it a shot. Go to the friend's page. Please do. You can go to, just pick a friend that you haven't heard from, go to their page, and you will see that they've been posting all along. It's just that they're not presenting it to you. And I think it's because it's just too much scale. That's point number one. Point number two, when you log in a second time, the flag reverts right back to the, uh, to the other stream, not the chronological one. So you have to keep resetting it every time. Tyler, you've been asking whether, you know, Facebook or or these platforms should or shouldn't um, kind of take responsibility for what is going on. But in a way, it's it's, you know, like they already do that, like they do take some level of responsibility for it. That's why they have content moderation. That's why they remove, you know, people killing themselves live or like things like that. Right. Because they do feel responsible for kind of not showing people like the most, you know, atrocious things on their platform. So that responsibility is already there. And I think, you know, the question that could be asked with with this um, uh, Muslim thing that was mentioned here is what was the reason for it not being removed? Was it a language barrier? You know, like was the algorithm not dealing with the language? Maybe that was the reason for it, right? So in a way saying like, Ah. should they be... 
the police on this. Right. They already are. Ah, so, sh well, to, are they in every country in the world equally? Well, probably not, and probably not. Right. So should Facebook, should Facebook uh, be the responsible party for curating and being the ethical, moral police on their platform, or should the governments in those countries government. manage exactly. those accounts? Tyler, you hit the nail on the head. It's the So in the UK, I can't watch Fox News, right? Because the UK regulatory authority considered Fox News to be biased or one-sided view does in the uk the law is a media must present itself as both side of the argument and fox news you can't watch on uh, in the uk unless you watch it on uh, youtube or your uh, but not on tv if you like sky tv it's not av available so, so it's the government regulatory independent regulatory bodies have to have and so i think it's not the media company's responsibility is the public and and where some governments are skewed one way or the other and so you can't you can't have a unified approach like you have in the uh, in the united states or in the uk or europe that just we have to accept that fact and not everywhere is going to be like it is for us Okay, so we'll go to in in okay. That's how I was going to ask you before you got off Facebook. Do you want to go to the major Wall Street Journal article today on Facebook, which, by the way, has some elements of the stuff that you're complaining about, where they just took a couple of sentences out of a document, but then they actually put in a whole document. They put in a, a like a scatter plot um, about the uh, the issue that they're they're talking about here, which is political bias. Uh, and so I thought maybe they put the scatter plot in because at least they can say, hey, you know, now we actually put in at least a piece of a whole document, you know. So I don't know if you want to go because it's a big story in the journal today. Is this the, the I have, there's actually two from the Wall Street Journal. One says, Facebook's internal chat boards show politics often at center of decision making. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. And there's a scatter plot in the, in the article, yeah. Mm -mm. Yes, I see that. Okay. Yeah, they've made a couple graphs, some data points. <clears throat> so the, and again, it's they're almost perfectly in this piece that I'll tweet out so you can see it. The big cover, full, 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 huge cover of the article shows three. Um, it looks like they were clipped out of paper, like somebody printed out a whole bunch of files, and somebody cut out short little sentences and i'll read the three sentences that they cut out little paper snippets out of these thousands of documents and one of them says get breitbart out of news tab do i need to explain this one that's one of the little paper cutouts that's you know shown as the huge greetings landing page of this article and so somebody said that at facebook doesn't say who said it. It's not attributed to anybody. But somebody, in one of the 100,000 employees at Facebook over the past 20 years said the following words. Get Breitbart out of news tab. Do I need to explain this one? Well, by, by the way, without reading the whole article, because I haven't, haven't right. read the whole article, it, it might be in the, in the article itself who said it. But you're right about they, they highlighted it kind of in the whatever part of the graphic, the, the headlines, the article. Right. Yeah. We don't know what the person said before or after that. 
uh, for the five years they worked there before and after. Uh, they just cherry pick out one little snippet. And then there's another snippet that says there's three. Here's the second one. The fact that we have a partner manager program for misinformation escalations at all is disheartening to me. Okay. Again, no attribution. We don't know who it is. We have zero context as to what's going on there. And then the third one says, my argument is that allowing Breitbart to monetize through us is, in fact, a political statement. It's an acceptance of extreme, hateful, and often false news used to propagate fear, racism, and bigotry. On a daily basis, it publishes articles that I believe insults our values as a company. Right. So one of the 100,000 people who worked at the Gutenberg Press, didn't like one of the books that was being published on the Gutenberg Press. So clearly, actually, you know, this person is very upset that this technology is being used to the financial benefit of somebody's views who they don't agree with, right? So the point is, these three little un these snippets with no attribution of who they're from or the bigger context of what's around them or what the, more importantly, what did the company decide as a company? What policies were made from the company about this? They make no mention of, there's no reference of, there's no real context. It's as if you got in a car crash on the freeway with 10 other people and somebody made not, not only a video of the argument that ensued, and the lawsuits that ensued for years afterward, and all the whiplash, and the doctors, and all the insurance companies, and the craziness. Somebody literally just took a, a, a text quote that somebody said out of the car crash, right? And put that as the focus of this. This is not the way to do news or journalism. You don't have to do it this way. You have Facebook saying, we're happy to have a conversation with you about it. That what this is highlighting is that text and short little snippets of text out of old documents, when there's lots of more context to be had, and we know there's more, no, I don't think anyone would deny that there's lots of more context that's available to anyone who's intellectually curious enough to explore it. And Facebook rolled out the red carpet to say, if you're interested in having an actual discussion around any of the documents or quotes that you find, we're here to have them, and they're not interested in having them, so they're intentionally not, they're intentionally leaving out critical context. That is my criticism of media in 2021, that people who built their hard-earned reputations on the bedrock of journalism are no longer interested in doing journalism. And I know I've repeated this dozens of times, but this is incredible. This is to a, a point worth reiterating. This is the main point: is we are watching the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vox, etc., participate in something quite unprecedented. At the the self sabotage of their journalistic principles for for the betterment of their uh, jihad against an economic opponent. I don't know if I can put it any more succinctly than that. And that is truly saddening. It, so yes, it, it says here here's the head, here's the actual text headline that the that they wrote, that they typed up. Facebook's internal chat boards show politics often at center of decision making. Oh, hold on, break it, is it breaking news, everybody. 
Oh my goodness. Facebook is having conversations internally. And they're making decisions. And a lot of those decisions are about politics. That's the headline from uh, Wall Street Journal today. They actually saw yeah, some. Yeah, what, they're, what, they're, what they're really oh my saying, Tyler, is that kind of they made a, um, a political decision in, in a loose sense internally about whether it's because most of the articles about Breitbart whether they should you know you know have you know less content from Breitbart because it was ranked as the least trusted of all their publishers and, and however they ranked them right but they were concerned but they were concerned and you know let's be fair to yes them. they were concerned if they pulled them off they would be accused of being biased so they were trying to right. essentially let everything flow so that nobody could accuse them of bias right yeah. they're already being accused of bias by the far right for silencing the president. They they remove the president's account. They remove all kinds of content from the far right all the time, every day, hundreds, if not tens of thousands of times a day. And that's not good enough for the New York Times, who has an agenda. And how dare anybody have any views that are not far left? And how dare you, Facebook, you have team members inside your organization who are telling you that there's something you should do and you're not doing it. Yet, at the same time, you already have the far right already pissed off that you... And, and by the way, Trump is likely to come back and win the presidency because they claim Facebook is silencing them. And that's why he's just made his own social media empire worth billions of dollars in the past couple days. Because Facebook it's, is silencing it's not, the right. It's Tyler, it's a stock. It's, right. It's not really operational. It's a stock. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's a company. That company is now worth billions of dollars in in the past 48 hours. I, I understand. That's the valuation. But it, right. it, it has no operation. And that wouldn't exist if Facebook let this content exist on Facebook. So now your silencing of the right is leading to a more extreme version of the virus. You've now created Delta Plus. So, is this whole silencing of this content you don't like actually a great idea? Does it make it go away? When somebody has views you don't like and you make it illegal for them to speak, do, does that make you feel safer that they have guns at home? And they know what time you go to sleep. Do we not want people to debate openly and publicly? I, this is These are some of the questions people should think about, the second, third order magnitude effects, before they start putting in policies, especially when they have no background in policies. The New York Times is ha, clearly, they have their own team members. Gabby Weiss uh, resigned saying, you are a toxic work environment, New York Times. I'm leaving you. Because I'm a centri I'm not even on the right side. I'm left. My parents are Orthodox Jews. I'm I'm myself a left-leaning Jewish journalist writing for the New York Times, and I say you're a toxic work environment, and I have to leave you. That's how extreme you are. I think her name is pronounced Barry Weiss. Yes, yeah, sorry, but... not Gabby. I'm sorry. <laughs> you're right, Barry Weiss. Thank you. So. Let's keep that in mind when we realize who's writing these articles against Facebook.
what their agenda is. This is not, it, it used to be five, even just five years ago, that if the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, whatever, were writing these articles, we'd be, oh, hey, main, these important legacy institutions of journalism are now highlighting important stuff, as Meg was saying, to the politicians. That's an incredibly important role that they historically used to have. Well, you kind of threw that baby out with the bathwater when you became jihadists. That's my point. Yes, they used to have an incredibly important role in society of highlighting this stuff to governments to make policies. But now you have gone so far on the political spectrum to the extreme that I'm not so sure we should be giving full credence to your flag waving and your research and uh, cherry picking of quotes out of these documents. I'm not so sure anymore that this is. And that's my sadness is we've lost an incredibly important uh, there's, there's function no more journalistic in, integrity. That's but, the but more, more we, yes, but that that there's a bigger problem, which is we've lost traditionally, historically, a critically important role in civil society that was being done by journalism by journalists, and now that and debate. now that they've become radicalized, we we're missing uh, uh, an, uh, a previously dependable uh, function in civil society. But by the way, Tyler, having grown up in New York City and grown up with the New York Times, I, I hate to disappoint you to tell you, but the New York Times has always been biased. Maybe now it's more apparent. Maybe now it's gotten worse. But the New York, the New York Times has always has had always a bias. Been... I agree with that. I agree. It's now, it's now existential, though. You know, this is self-preservation at this point. They, anything that is an attack on their existence is now um, unfettered attacks without any 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 real any real logic you know like they'll paint any story essentially and that's the that's the most troubling part well the re- all these things that facebook's being accused of are quite egregious but it's just how transparent they are in their attacks right and and, and how they don't care about the actual situation for me what triggers me the most is still about the kids and and just you know what's going to break my heart is if this week we go into this uh, Senate hearing on Wednesday and you hear one of the senators ask something like a fluff piece, like, so tell me about the school program. And if they, if they fall for it, I'm going to be completely heartbroken. I'm going to, I'll shut up now, but I I'm worried that that's what will happen. I'm worried. They're going to read the New York times article instead of anything about the milk crate challenge, the Benadryl challenge, the school trashing challenge, the so- knockout a teacher challenge. You know, you name it, all these things that are actually very, very negative for our society and our children right now. And yet, you know, because TikTok isn't a direct advertiser and competitor against them, uh, the New York Times is not only giving them a pass, they're giving them a fluff piece on Friday. I'll shut up now. So the reason we have to, we've been spending as much time as we have on these is because these are the most discussed stories in the tech sphere, in the Twitter sphere. So the top story is the New York Times one about the internal documents about uh, India. And we brought in the additional context of how the New York Times itself, that even India is confused about how incredibly slanted and extreme the, the New York Times is in how it covers India. And of course, they're not revealing that to its readers when they talk about how Facebook is engaging with India. The second one is... As Ken pointed out, the these Wall Street Journal articles about how 
wild breaking news, Facebook is debating um, about political issues, about moderation of political issues. And the information says they have sources about, oh, no, that's an old one. Bloomberg internal documents show Facebook staff faulted the company for failing to thwart the proliferation of groups like Stop the Steal, uh, NBC News. Internal documents Facebook employees created a test account in 2019, and within days it recommended extreme and conspiratorial content, including QAnon. And the Washington Post, a new whistleblower, a formal member of Facebook's integrity team, files the SEC complaint alleging Facebook prized profits over fighting hate speech, etc. Okay, now there's a whole new addition to this conversation that Anna Marie sent in. And this is this 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 takes this makes this whole thing take a, a very interesting new turn. So watch what happens here. So a one of the people quoted in these files is a Facebook researcher named Alex Muffet, who's a, a Facebook engineer. Uh, his role is in cryptography, about end-to-end -end encryption. And he shows uh, that he did an interview with Stephen Levy over at Wired, who Wired isn't in the jihad, by the way. They weren't included in the jihad because Wired is trying to do this thing called journalism. So Alex from Facebook, who's uh, one of the cryptography people at Facebook, did an interview with Wired about Francis Hagen leaking his documents in which he basically points out how she's a complete hypocrite. And let's read through his tweet thread that I'm now tweeting to the Tech News Twitter account so you can see for yourself. He says, I'm posting this with password embargo until Stephen Levy's Wire article is posted because I don't want to, you know, I just did an interview with him. I want to respect the fact that I did an interview with him. I know he's writing a piece about it. So I'm going to time the release of my comments with his article. I don't want to pre-jump him, as it's called in journalism. I don't want to jump his piece, right? I don't want to kind of jump out in front of his article. So he says, uh, but I have a message for Francis Hargan here that on my Twitter feed, that a screenshot. that I, Here's my message to Francis Hargan. So... <clears throat> Francis Hoggins' documents reveal that several employees who were working on the project have left Facebook after expressing misgivings about it. And then he says, whoa, 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 Francis. You're taking things out of context here. Oh, shit. Now we have the people who are the actual people behind these cherry-picked quotes and who are being referenced in these little hit pieces, are now standing up and saying, whoa, 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 you're taking things out of context. That's my quote. And especially on the issue, and this guy, Alex, is as he should be, the, what this really boils down to is the issue of the encryption, which is coming. And this is a huge, this is super, I love what this guy has done here, this guy, Alex. So he says, bottom line up front, and he calls out Francis Hagen. He goes, Francis, I know you're leaking my shit. Please pay attention to this. This is important. He says, I, this is his words to her, not my words to you. He's telling her, this is important, Francis. Please, let's get this right. Please focus on this. He says, Francis, if you read this, do please tell 
the DCMS committee up front and don't let them distract or dissuade you that people need the privacy which end-to-end encryption can bring to them and that keeping people safe does not require their communications to be interfered with by platforms or governments. So he's making the case for very pro-encryption here. And he doesn't want government meddling in the encryption because they want it. They're almost insisting on it. They're saying, no, 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 no. You cannot have encryption. We need a backdoor into that. And Facebook as well is thinking, and the government's telling Facebook, you need a backdoor into that. And Facebook is like, we don't want a backdoor. We want end-to-end encryption because we want to keep you to stop messaging us thousands of times a day about policing our stuff. We didn't create this platform to police it. We just created a technology so that people could use it. Now you're telling us we got a moderator. That wasn't why we created this whole thing in the first place. We're going to end-to-end encrypt it. So you can't see it. We can't see it. It Apple tried to do that. Apple tried to be like, we don't even have the keys. We don't want to know. Government get off our back. We don't want to build a team of thousands of people to deal with the endless thousands of emails every day from the government agencies asking us to crack shit open. We're tired of that nonsense. So is Facebook tired of it. So is Twitter tired of it. And so he, as on the encryption team at Facebook, watch where this goes. This gets really interesting very quickly. He says, Francis is talking to the DCMS tomorrow. So she should have opportunity to bring this message of privacy and safety to people who would benefit from it. And then he shows a screenshot from The Guardian where it says on Monday, Hagen will take her damning views of the company to Westminster in the UK when she testifies before the MPs and peers. Meanwhile, Facebook spirals into deeper crisis, according to The Guardian. He says, oh, dear, oh, dear. Facebook whistleblower warns dangerous encryption will aid espionage by hostile nations. Ex-employee has taken aim at Sir Nick Clegg and warns new encryption plans are an attempt to cover up harmful online material. He says, this is deeply bizarre of Frances Hagen. She is arguing that if Facebook willingly surrenders its ability to spy on user content, including on behalf of, say, the Chinese government, then it cannot protect those users from the Chinese government. She is, And then he goes on to say in his next Twitter tweet in this thread. She is literally proposing that Facebook should act as a supernat- in a supernatural manner and supernational manner and in that process should deny users from having message privacy. Oh, oh the irony. I don't think she has thought this through terribly well, not to mention that one of the documents she leaked is literally all about this I know because I wrote it. We are now in an exciting situation where we can pit one of Facebook whistleblower against another, meaning he's blowing the whistle himself. And we could also ask Frances Hagen if she believes that Facebook should protect UK users against malware sent by the NSA and the GCHQ, meaning the, the intelligence agency of the UK. P.S. If you're interested in a thumbnail sketch of the harms which will be caused by banning harmful feed algorithms, here's my take on it. And he did a tweet where he says, uh, it'll be weird if the echo chamber of politicians, journalists, and quote-unquote safety child polit- protection advocates succeed in somehow banning algorithmic contact feeds and then evaporate when the rage which feeds their community dialectic eventually dissipates. Brilliant point. He's actually looking two chess moves ahead. 
which they are not doing. They're going to totally self-sabotage themselves and they don't even realize it. He does because he actually builds the technology. A question for Francis Hogan at uh, the DMCS tomorrow. Should Facebook be responsible for protecting EU citizens from state-sponsored malware being deployed on Facebook by the state? If you want to read the unexpurged, expurgated article, this appears to have the context. Again, he's criticizing how they're cherry-picking his own quotes in ways that are not relevant to his bigger arguments. Here is the point which really does demand being driven home tonight. Anyone who tells you that they know how Facebook Messenger with default end-to-end encryption will behave is fibbing, especially regarding anti-abuse features. Choices of feature and what gets launched will still be in the air. Features can take months, if not years, to be shipped. Speculate all you want, but it will still be just hot air, as will any statement which declares the app to be a recipe for disaster. So I shared that to the Tech News Twitter account, so you can enjoy that. Hey, Tyler. Yes. Let me let me let me make the actual the actual critical point I was leading up to. He's saying that the governments are being also shady in all of this because they are insisting on getting into your encrypted apps. And he's whistle he's that's now that's true whistleblowing. He works in encryption at Facebook. He knows that the governments are intentionally, as he says, trying to embed malware into your devices and want full access to your encrypted conversations. And Tyler, this was the point I was going to touch on, actually, what you just said. Okay, there's two sides to this, which is if you have backdoors, then the government goes on a, a phishing expedition. On the flip side, though, if you have a situation where they get a warrant, and I'm not even talking about a Pfizer court. Let's say, I'm, I'm just going to use an extreme example. They, they think that some uh, terrorist organization is going to un, un, unleash, unleash a bi- biological weapon in, in a major U.S. city. And the government goes to the, even the U.S. Supreme Court openly and says, we want uh, a warrant, even though they probably won't disclose who's in the warrant. Well, we want a warrant. Even with a warrant from the U.S. Supreme Court, if you've got really good encryption and there's no back door, how does the government find out who the bad guys are who are going to go try to kill a couple of million people? So there's a there's a flip side there too. Uh, yeah, of course. I think there is an answer to that. Go ahead, Ken. I think the answer to that is the endpoint. You mean let them snoop on the endpoint? I'm not saying let them. I'm just saying that that's technically possible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yes, subtle but important distinction. Um. It's going to be interesting to see people here and, and other other Facebook folks coming in, jumping into the conversation here. So uh, next up is Citizen Lab. This is New York Times. It's about Citizen Lab. Citizen Lab is the, the outfit in Toronto who revealed the whole Pegasus um Speaking of, you know, in, in putting malware into your devices, governments um, putting malware into your devices, 
New York Times Citizen Lab, the iPhone of Ben Hubbard, an American reporter for the New York Times, was hacked in 2020 and 2021, likely by Saudi Arabia using NSO's Pegasus spyware. NSO denies it. Can I make a small comment about this weirdness? Yeah. You know, I always joke about, well, I don't joke. I actually take my security extremely seriously and I always bring it up. Um, In the past uh, three or four days, my phone has been a mess. Uh, My burner phone, I click on and off uh, my mic. It'll freeze up to where I can't use the phone anymore. And I reset it recently and it seems to be back to normal. So who knows? So this article says, I was hacked. The spyware used against me makes us all vulnerable. Invasive hacking software sold to countries to fight terrorism is easily abused. Researchers say my phone was hacked twice, probably by Saudi Arabia, but but very certainly by Israeli spyware. So uh, in Mexico, the government hacked the cell phones of journalists and activists. Saudi Arabia has broken into phones of dissidents at home and abroad, sending some to prison. The ruler of Dubai hacked the phones of his ex-wife, and that. So perhaps I should not have been surprised when I learned recently that I, too, had been hacked. Still, the news was unnerving. As a New York Times correspondent who covers the Middle East, I often speak to people who take great risks to share information that their authoritarian rulers want to keep secret. Oh, now now you want secrecy on a platform. I thought you were just arguing that we need to stop all of these crazy people. Meg was making the point, oh, these tech platforms are truly atrocious. They're uh, leading to, uh, you know, different cultures attacking each other. And now here's this New York Times journalist being, I need, I need secure encryption. Now you understand why this is about encryption? Because the New York Times in the last article was basically haranguing about, you got to remove all the bad stuff we don't like. We got to, you got to, there's bad stuff happening there. You got to get that out. And then one article later, I've got important shit that that you should not have the ability to remove. Or, Or even look at. Do you see how the encryption issue is going to become one of the biggest issues of 2022? And how if the if the governments are able to get into it and not and etc. And data privacy and yada yada yada. Whew. But in a world where we store so much of our personal, uh, I, I take my oh, hold on. As a New York Times correspondent who covers the Middle East, I often speak with people who take great risks to share information that their authoritarian rulers want to keep secret. I take many precautions to protect these sources because if they were caught, they could end up in jail or dead. But in a world where we store so much of our personal and professional lives in the devices we carry in our pockets and where surveillance software continues to become ever more sophisticated, we are increasingly vulnerable. Right. As it turns out, I didn't even have to click on a link for my phone to be infected to try and determine what happened. I work with Citizen Lab, a research institute in Toronto. I hope to find out when I had been hacked by who, blah, 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 blah. We we got it. Yeah. So you don't have privacy and you don't want any people doing bad shit to have privacy either. And you want them silenced and removed. And governments who don't like what you're saying want you silenced and removed. 
Yeah, I mean, I joke about being vaporized, but, you know, I'm highly critical of certain governments. And, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they they are able to get to me pretty quickly. So the next one's from The Verge. Microsoft reverses its decision to remove code editing feature called Hot Reload in its upcoming .NET 6. Who cares? Next one, CISA. This is American Intelligence Agency. Warns of malware discovered in um, a JavaScript package called UA Parser, uh, which is an incredibly popular piece of JavaScript, uh, which has been downloaded uh, just about 7 million times a week, about a million times a day. A website, a, a developer, goes... Here's a little hint for you. If you hire a developer, you think they're writing code to build something for you. They're not. They're going to repositories of code and picking out Lego bricks and then bringing that sack of Lego bricks back to their desk and they're building you your little Lego castle out of these Lego bricks. They're not actually building the Lego bricks themselves 99% of the time. And these little bricks... Doesn't that sound just like how lawyers put together documents? Yes, lawyers lawyers are essentially doing the same. And... These, a lot of these are little pieces of JavaScript that do these little functions. And one of these very popular JavaScript functions that are in lots of websites is being downloaded a million times a day by developers. That means it's going into a million websites a day. A a million new websites each day are adding this in. And this little piece of code, it's now been revealed, installs a password stealer and a crypto miner. A massively popular JavaScript library was hacked today and modified with a malicious code that downloaded and installed a password stealer. Chris, that's that's your cue, Chris. This is your minutely (laughs) reminder that I'm on a a burner phone with nothing installed on it and uh, on a cellular line. The next one from The Verge, Tesla rolls back its full self-driving beta from version 10.3, which improved many items like brake light and turn signal detection to 10.2 after seeing some issues. Elon Musk didn't specify what issues the company found Tesla's decision to test its full self-driving. Yeah, they okay. Yeah. For those who don't know, that's there's going to be a whole lot of attention focused on Tesla's full self-driving. Because uh, you've got a whole bunch of people hoping it happens and a whole bunch of people hoping it doesn't happen. And it's, boy, what an incredibly, you could make a documentary out of Tesla full self-driving by itself. Because there's people saying it's not possible. You have even engineers who even work on full self-driving and other competing companies saying there's no way this is ready now. You have politicians being like... Experts are telling us this is not possible. Elon's like, well, it's possible. We're doing it. And we cherry picked out our own favorite Tesla owners to test it. And then they're saying, no, you can't do that. You need to have a public sampling and you have to let them talk to us if something crazy happens so that we know that it's not safe. And it's it's a really interesting drama going on behind the scenes here with full self-driving beta. Next one from Reuters that Proton and Mail. Don't forget the, hmm? And don't forget the Teslas are still crashing into you know emergency yeah vehicles. emergency vehicles. 
Uh, the next one is about proton mail. Wow, what a surprise. Another issue about encrypted communication. What a shock. Again, I do not create this list of top headlines each day, as Cheryl knows. And I imagine somebody told Cheryl uh, where, where my list is. And wow, what do you know? Next one, Reuters, Proton Mail. Proton claims to be end-to-end encrypted email, becoming incredibly popular. Oh, should Proton be responsible for how bad actors are using it? Should email, should Gmail be responsible? For, you know, we're worried that Facebook is enabling uh, Hindus to kill Muslims and vice versa uh, because they're doing it on Facebook Messenger. Uh, face, how dare you, Facebook? Uh, wh- what about email? There's a whole bunch of companies using e- email as a protocol. Is now we need, you, you see how complex you can't, Facebook is not the issue here. Do you understand that? So, Proton Mail allows for encrypted email, meaning there, in theory, you shouldn't be able to do or see anything. Turns out you can. Governments are forcing Proton to reveal the names of people in Proton Mail. We read that headline two months ago. When protesters in France, when France forced Switzerland to force Proton Mail to reveal the names of protesters in France. We read that headline in this room two months ago. So it turns out Proton Mail isn't as safe as most of its users assume. Tyler, I think that's the free version so far. Which 99.9% of people use. And then Proton Mail had to reveal, oh yeah, if you actually want real protection, buy our paid version. Oh, that's that feels very assuring. Like you wouldn't cough that up. Oh, oh I see. If you don't want... If, you, if I don't want you to actually... Yeah, by the way, you claimed on your website, on the front of the website, that it's encrypted and you cannot and no government intervention, etc. On the free version, just for the record, Craig, on their website, they said the free version is fully safe. We can't know, you know, if you want to communicate safely, blah, 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 blah. That was all part of the headline two months ago with the screenshot of the front of their website that said that. So they were not being transparent about the fact that... And what what does that even mean? Oh, well, if you pay us $10 a month, then we won't reveal your names when the authorities come to us and tell us they're going to shut us down if we don't reveal it, which is what they did. The government comes and says, you either hand these names over or we shut you down. But if you pay us $10 a month, we'll, we'll take that risk for you. Yeah, right. What exactly am I buying for $10 a month then? So, Proton Mail, here's the headline from Reuters. Proton Mail's parent company wins a Swiss court appeal confirming email services are not considered telcos and thus not subject to data retention requirements. Ah, so this is, again, did I not tell you that encryption was going to be the hot topic for 2022? Here it is. A, A court just ruled that email providers don't need to keep records that's very important because now proton mail when the government comes and says tell us the names of those people proton mail can be like oops sorry we don't keep that information and they're gonna be like you have to keep yeah the swiss court in this ruling says email service providers are not like telephone companies email providers don't need to keep the data retain the data Go ahead, Greg. 
Personally, yeah, sorry. Personally, I think um, I'm feeling more comfortable with with Germany's privacy laws and the email providers there. I don't know if anybody in this group has thoughts of Switzerland versus Germany. Well, this all goes back to the issue of policing, moderating tools, technology, of which paper and the printing press are important historical conversations in this conversation. By the way, so is the telephone, though. Yeah, very much so. So is radio. So, um, secure email group Proton wins Swiss appeal over surveillance rules, is the headline. Gene- and th- for those, this, by the way, 99% of people are going to read this headline and be like, oh, whatever, skip, next, swipe right, no big deal. No, this is a huge deal. This, this is going to be one of the hugest issues of 2022. Of... Yeah. You know what the only real difference, by the way, between t- uh, telephones and, and email is, is, is in most countries, the telephone systems, if you're talking about, well, even if you're talking about cellular, but certainly about landlines, they, they were given almost like monopoly status. I mean, they were given almost like exclusive licenses where anybody can start an email service. And that's why there's usually sometimes this legal distinction between what's a common carrier, what's not, and different regulations, even though... You know, you can communicate over a phone, and you can also communicate communicate over an email. And then, if the government's looking into something for hopefully legitimate reasons, like stopping a terrorist, they want the same ability to you know to be able to search emails as they want to be able to search phone records. But you know, has, stuff is catching up. You know. Yeah, Proton calls itself the world's largest secure email provider, using end-to-end encryption and state-of-the-art security features. The Swiss Federal Administrative Court upheld its appeal against the Swiss Post and Telecommunication Surveillance Services over its status and obligations to monitor traffic. The court confirmed that email services cannot be considered telecommunication providers in Switzerland and thus are not subject to the data retention requirements imposed on them. Proton founder and chief executive Andy Yen said Friday's ruling was an important first step in its campaign to advance privacy and freedom. We expect there to be further attempts to force tech companies to undermine privacy in both Switzerland and abroad. He's right about that. Boy, that is the the most understated, important sentence uh, of the day. Damn right he knows this. Damn right he's getting endless, endless thousands, thousands and thousands of requests from governments around the world saying, hey, uh, we were the FBI, we're MI6, we, you know, we're, you know, the ISI in Pakistan. We noticed that you've got this communication. Somebody's using proton mail to send us information. Uh, we need to find out who this in- individual is. Thank you very much. And proton says, go fuck yourself. And then they say, oh, really? Because we'll talk to your boss, the Swiss government, and the Swiss government will force you to do X, Y, Z. Is that what you really want? And now this ruling, this why this ruling is so important. And this ruling came about precisely because of that headline we read two months ago, where France forced Switzerland to force Proton to reveal the names of the French protesters. And Proton's, Proton's like, WTF, bro? We're not a telecommunications company. We shouldn't be responsible. We shouldn't have to follow keeping data records that telephone companies do. We're not a telephone company. So... This court says exactly that. And he's saying um, that we expect there to be further attempts to force tech companies to undermine privacy in both Switzerland and abroad. Yep. And we are committed to continuing to challenge this through both our encrypted technology and through the courts. Right. And the 
back to Ben's point, the encrypted conversation, what what Ben very pithily, very kind of subtly dropped, was a very important point in this conversation, which is, that's great you're able to communicate end-to-end encrypted with grandma about what you want for Christmas. However, they can still hack your devices five ways to Friday and find out once it comes out the other end what the message said because it's on your screen. They can't see it while it's in the mail, but once it arrives... Yeah, that, that's that's interesting, Tutter, because it, what we're saying there is for, for the time slice of the encryption, i.e. the time it takes for the packets to go through, yeah, all encrypted, but the, so what you're saying is that out the other end, you still get the result through, yeah. So we expect there to be, uh, yeah, PTSS has decided in September 2020 that Proton could no longer benefit from limited surveillance obligations, but had to store data necessary for surveillance and be available to answer its questions around the clock. The court overruled that, overturned that ruling and sent the case back to for a fresh decision. The verdict followed a Swiss Supreme Court ruling in April that providers of chat, instant messaging, internet video, and telephone services or email services such as WhatsApp, iMessage, Zoom, Teams, Chime, and Skype were not telephone service providers, but rather over-the-top OTT service providers. Together, these two rulings are a victory for privacy in Switzerland and a victory for Swiss tech startups as they, as they exempt them from onerous telco regulations and handing over certain user information in response to Swiss legal orders, Proton said in a statement. And do you hear that sound? Do you hear the sound of feet of geeks running to build their startups in Switzerland? Who have anything to do with communications? So, if you want an actually secure communication platform, build it in Switzerland. And if you're a user who wants to use a VPN or a uh, communication platform, like an email platform like Proton, maybe choose a Swiss one where it's now decided in the highest court that the government can't force them to reveal or even keep records of. Uh, what's going on on their platform. And then here, the next paragraph says, still Proton has faced criticism after a police report revealed that it provided the IP addresses of a user in a French investigation that led to the arrest of the climate activists in France. Yep, I said that before we even opened the article. So, uh, again, this is going to be the big issue. And governments are all going to decide, just like they're trying to decide what the hell to do about Bitcoin, they're also trying to decide what the hell are we going to do about end-to-end encryption. Because we want access to that, and we can debate this all day long. But once you have end-to-end encryption, do you think people are going to be using Facebook to do illegal activity? Well, Facebook itself wants to bring end-to-end encryption to Messenger. So it can stop the endless, huge homework assignment of reading, you know, of constant endless requests from government agencies to reveal the contents and actors involved in all of these investigations. So, um, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I thought I was interjecting appropriate time. Yeah. Um, The the moment WhatsApp started saying end-to-end encrypted on it as you load the app is the moment I stopped trusting it. And I wonder what behavioral kind of feedback you get. I wonder how many people don't know that end-to-end encryption means nothing when you can compromise the operating system and get full access and actually then get attracted to share a list. 
artificial to say end-to-end encrypted to try and attract people to try and use it for things that they shouldn't be so just interesting the next one is an indian startup called clear which helps individuals and businesses file tax returns raises 75 million in part from stripe and now this is the second time that stripe the world's largest fintech company which is going to ipo sooner or later um has invested in now two Indian startups in the past week. Worth noting. The next one, The Guardian, Tesco. Tyler, just, just quickly on the yeah. last one. Uh-huh. It's, it's, the same, it's the same business model as, I think it was like, was it was it Quick, Quicken or QuickBooks then? Um, yes. Uh, did, did the jump start to the rocket mortgages? I, like, so they're using the whole data sets that are already within the existing to then jumpstart like a new product. So I can imagine in this one on the tax returns there, you know, it's pretty handy having the transactions through Stripe and everything's there. So just find it interesting that there's like these containers that are then resulting in like, I don't know, kind of sidecar businesses really, really fast as a result of like their existing database or data on customers. Right. And that, uh, they're taking advantage of, and they should while they can, because Stripe is not considered big tech yet. They're not even publicly traded yet, although they're far bigger than the most publicly traded companies. They're massive. It's like a $100 billion company. So um, they have a lot of data. They've got incredible, juicy, sweet, sweet data, Stripe does. And they can use that data to invest in startups who use Stripe is used by every startup, including Clubhouse. So, for example, here's a great example. The little tip jar in Clubhouse, which you can see on my profile, where it says send money or whatever. That's Clubhouse like, oh, we want to enable that. That's great. That would take a long time to hire a big team to make that feature and do it securely. It's easy to make the feature. It's very difficult to do it securely. Stripe makes it crazy simple. Like, you can do it in a weekend. Just take a little line of code, plug it in, plop, great. How do you want to do it? Bada boom, bada bing. Now you've got financial transactions between people on your platform. That's what Stripe does for every website on the planet. And because they made it so simple and very reasonable rates, and holy cow, did that catch on like wildfire. Now, they have data about Clubhouse about tip jars, about people sending stuff. They probably have more accurate data about uh, Clubhouse than anyone other than Clubhouse and Agora, the, the communication pipes you know, that allow the audio to tr- go through the accounts. So, And wherever the cloud company that's hosting it, most likely Amazon Web Services or Google Cloud. So there's a few actors here, whoever's hosting it, whether it be Amazon or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure, or Stripe. They have data about Clubhouse. Really, really juicy, juicy, valuable data that, of course, they would not uh, abuse. However, uh, they could if they could do it in a very clever way. And many have accused Google of using Google Cloud and Amazon of using AWS to, well, not so much Amazon, more so Google, because Google has a VC company, a, Google, a, a, a VC arm called Google Ventures, or what they now call, call Big G or whatever. And Google Ventures invest in startups. Do you wonder if the Google investors who are investing in startups ask Google Cloud, hey, we're, we're meeting with a startup, how's their traffic doing? And Stripe is now invested in two 
fintech-ish related uh, Indian startups. Gee, I wonder if they looked at the data. Well, Amazon and Google, if they were to do that, that would turn into Wall Street Journal articles. Stripe is not considered part of big tech, even though, as I said, wow, talk about a huge company that doesn't get a lot of attention outside of the you know true geek inner circles. Where in in the geek inner circles, we don't really talk much about Google or Facebook or Amazon. We talk about Stripe. Stripe is fucking holy shit amazing to geeks. And they've got a whole lot of crazy data. And it'd be interesting to see, as uh, Dave kind of hinted, uh, perhaps they're using their data as an asymmetric advantage in deciding who to invest in. And should they be able to do that in India? Uh, no? Yeah, and Tyler, just, just to your point, you've, you've said it a few times, like, it's just a line of code. I, I'd never done an app um, putting Stripe live in it, but I did one two weeks ago. <laughs> and I was like, I was properly amazed that, um, yeah, you could just plug this thing in. And now we've got like transactions going through that 24 seven. I just like, it's just amazing. I, I don't know, just for the yeah. audience, maybe do a little YouTube two minutes. You, yeah. you can just see how easy that, that gets happened. That's the, the Lego bricks I was referring to earlier. If you hire somebody to build a website and you say, oh, and they're going to ask you, oh, do you want people to exchange money in any kind of way? And you're going to say, yep. And they're like, great. Uh, let me give me 30 minutes. I'm going to go get a Stripe, create a Stripe account and get a piece of code and plug it in. OK, boom. Now we have payments. Uh, what else do you want? So the next one's from The Guardian that Tesco. Hmm? The other key part is um, Stripe plays a very crucial part in the identification role of the Internet. Um, the layer. Yeah. Yep. So that, yeah. that's really the other game changer that it's, Stripe plays too. Well, this is if the you next account. Your Stripe account is right. Sorry. The next, the next. This is the next chess move. Uh, you know, coming in the months to come, which is because Stripe is financial data, and they know, you know, you you have a credit card. They re they know who you are, your transactions, that yada yada yada. They know a lot about a lot of users and what they're doing, and that's very useful if you want to identify users on the internet. They see everyone who's ever bought anything on any website. So they have a whole lot of identity data. Uh, you know. Anyway, the next one's from The Guardian about Tesco, UK's largest supermarket chain, was hacked on Saturday, halting online grocery orders through Sunday. Tesco says its site and app are, are back up and running. Okay, and... Should we take a huge wager on who hacked Tesco? The, the outage leaves grocery website and app down for a second day. A Tesco spokesperson said, since yesterday, we've been experiencing disruption to our online grocery website and app. An attempt was made to interfere with our systems, which has caused problems with the search function. We're working hard to fully restore the services. There's no reason to believe that this issue impacts customer data. And we continue to take ongoing action to make sure all data is safe. Um, does it say who? Shoppers voiced their frustration on social media. Some posted messages that they received from the supermarket telling them that because of the current IT issue, Tesco was unable to access or change any orders at the moment. Sarah Will Willman, a wholesale seller of flowers, uh, tweeted that she had been told to send a direct message to cancel her order due on Sunday but later received a reply from Tesco saying that was not possible. I understand you still have IT issues, but but much as I love gin, I don't need two bottles and some crisps this evening. 
uh, when ASDA saved the day with actual food this morning. Oh, good. So the kitty got some kibble in her bowl. And so, so there, Tesco, you were not able to bring me kibble in my little bowl. And I found an, someone else who was willing to feed me. And, <laughs> and what Sarah doesn't realize is they're all going to get hacked. And they will all stop giving her kibble in her little bowl. And she's going to go have to learn how to catch a bird. <laughs> Tyler, it's interesting. Like Tesco, like um, I'm sure you, the audience knows, but like um, massively came on the stage in the 90s. And like they started to started out the whole dot com thing. And like, you know, we're there. Imagine them like kind of growing up in the Amazon days. The, the so what is that a lot of that legacy, i.e. that was new in the 90s, is still in place and these supermarkets have got like just massive spaghetti of like legacy so i imagine like there's there's probably becoming a little bit of a burning platform for that specific retailer around like uh yeah some some wholesale new tech because it's all stitched together legacy so again here's your daily warning don't be dependent on platforms that can be hacked for your food and energy and water. Like our friend here, uh, Sarah Willman, who was chastising Tesco for not being able to bring her her kibble that day because she's a hungry little kitty. And she turned to Asda, Tesco's competitor, who was more than capable of bringing her, putting kibble in her little bowl. Well, guess, guess what? Get ready for when there is uh, the begin. There, you're gonna. This is not gonna slow down. These are escalating. We had this. Ask any Swede. This happened in Sweden just a couple months ago, where the biggest supermarket Coop got shut down for many days. Hold on to your hats. It's going to be a very bumpy ride. These bad actors are finding a whole lot of vulnerabilities. I'm honestly surprised that they even reveal any of them individually. What I, what I have to imagine they're doing, and this is the first time I'm kind of making it this clear, is penetration testing all of the critical services, all the food companies, all the energy companies, so that when... The cyber war of 2022 fully launches full steam. They penetrate all of them, cripple them all simultaneously. So you will have no energy and no food from there will be no supermarkets. All the whole supply chain, all, as many of the links in the supply chain of food and energy will be all crippled simultaneously. To assume that's not in the works i if if i'm uh an, a, an enemy of the west uh what else would you be doing feels like a good time to flag they they tell me how this is this is how the world ends that that book <laughs> like and then and by the way st if i feel if 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 you're an enemy uh, if you have an enemy in 2020, if you're, if you're a country and you have a very large enemy, uh, 
rather than just go straight to the full hot combat, you know, with missiles and planes and whatever, why not, you know, a week or two or three before that, start with the cyber attacks that cripple the country from within, leading to utter chaos, utter, complete chaos internally. Wouldn't that be kind of a smart move preemptively, like a month before, you know, and right in the middle of the utter chaos when the country is teetering on the brink of collapse and people are starting to murder each other for food and water and energy. Now let's start. Now let's roll in the tanks. Now let's start dropping. It's it's, it's hard though, Tyler, isn't it, to really fully embrace what you've described. But I think the best um, snapshot was that colonial pipeline that just came out of nowhere and then just like (laughs) absolute havoc. So I I think like when you, when you're speaking, I'm thinking like that kind of, 10x than 20x i think it's a yeah does well we're worried about but, but, worried but tyler about if you if you mess with their heads they'll do it themselves you don't even need tanks yeah, true you might not even yeah worst case best case scenario you don't even have to escalate it to hot combat you just leave it as cyber warfare we have i think that's what's going up. on is that you you influence their opinions and their mind and they start self-destructing correct well that's I been ongoing now this is the that's 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 well, been facebook's biggest challenge by the way by the way i think this is not new it's been going on for centuries okay. right yes Mis- misinformation and lying and fooling people is like not new like the roman empire like kept losing right. emperors for that reason however it's been scaled and perfected and fast and i think that's kind of Information has become a weapon, and I think we need like a second amendment about it. Right, but the, the a lot of these armies are not yet fully autonomous, and so they're based on humans who eat food and drink water, and need and they have vehicles that need energy. So it would make sense to preemptively attack those critical resources that your your own military is dependent on before you launch the military offensive, Chris. Most of them are most of them are socially engineered. I believe that the pipeline attack was actually, you know, access gained through social engineering, if I remember correctly. Yes, that one was the colonial one was socially engineered. So um, but my point is, I'm surprised that they even, uh, you know, go through with some of these attacks. Uh, I have to imagine they're cataloging their vulnerabilities uh, to save for a rainy day. The next one is from... Oh, Kaidi Nusai. Toshitano. Oishikatana. The next one's from Protocol, a look at productivity influencers who center their content around apps like Notion, Excel, and Asana offering advice on how to stay organized. This is the creator's internet. The rest of us are just living in it. We're accustomed to the scores of comedy. So that's not that interesting, to be honest. The next one is from TechCrunch. India-based Grow, which lets users invest in mutual funds, gold, stocks, and more, raises $251 million at $3 billion valuation. And Washington Post says a look at the bitter privacy debate in Colorado neighborhood over the use of license plate scanners made by a company called Flock, whose customer base has risen 4x since 2019. A battle among homeowners in Colorado 
may, uh, shows how a new generation of surveillance technologies re reshaping American neighborhoods. And yes, there's a company called Flock, which I believe got some funding by some very big, um, I believe Sequoia, Flock license plate reader, and it's called flocksafety.com. And let's see, Flock Safety Investors. Flock raises $47 million. Um, new investors include the Julia and Kevin Hartz, who were the co-founders of Eventbrite, uh, Initialized Capital, and Andreessen Horowitz. And Andreessen Horowitz, as you probably know, is one of the is the main backer of Clubhouse and initialized is the Gary Tan, um, who's quite friendly with Andreessen. And um, yeah, so you've got an, a bunch of friends and the Eventbrite founders, Julie and Kevin, are quite friendly in that click as well. And it's um, it's an interesting article about, you know, should they're, they're Flock is basically telling communities, hey, are you a uh, a small township or whatever? Would you like to know everyone going in and out of a particular geography? We can do that for you. Help your, help your city use Flock Safety, an ethical way to stop crime and protect privacy, is the big quote on their site. And they have a quote from a senior community manager from Florida that says, I couldn't find anything comparable to the type of system Flock Safety product provides that also includes the hardware and installation all in one price. And yeah, they've made a turnkey simple solution for your city council to, or your HOA, your homeowner association to put cameras in your neighborhood. And then somebody, you know, whoever this was, wrote this article. Well, Washington Post wrote an article about how some neighborhoods um, don't don't want it. Yeah. So it talks about uh, HOAs, homeowner associations, who put up these camera systems in their cute little neighborhoods, and not everybody in the neighborhood's happy about it. So next article is from. Uh, a profile of a France-based blah blah car, a long-distance carpooling marketplace with 80% of its riders outside of France and 60% outside of Europe. Yeah, blah blah car has been huge in Europe for a long time. Next up, a Brazil-based company called Hash, which develops white-label payment infrastructure, uh, raises 40 million. The next is researchers detail how hackers are using FiveSys, a rootkit with a Microsoft-issued digital signature to steal the login credentials of gamers in China. So Chinese gamers are being hacked, okay. And they're being done with a tool that shows that the tool is Microsoft. So they've that's quite clever. They're kind of concealing their footprints. And the next one is a Tel Aviv-based company, Metrolink.ai, which is developing a data management services, raises $22 million. A startup called Embrace, a mobile data intelligence startup, raises $45 million. And those are your big, boring headlines today, Monday. 
So now we get into the tweets. And CSQ um, sends in this one that Mercedes-Benz, I just tweeted this out. And with all the tweets, I tweet them to the Tech News Twitter account at TNATW, like this one, that Mercedes-Benz brings augmented reality to its service department. Technicians may be able to tap their wrist and access real-time assistance on never-before-seen issues concerning complex vehicles. So it shows an auto mechanic fixing a, a Mercedes with his head under the hood, but on his head, he's wearing an AR device, these glasses. And in this case, they look like Microsoft HoloLens, actually. And he's able to see interesting layer of information about the car. And this is uh, an interesting use case of AR that most people don't think about, of how technicians of all kinds, plumbers, etc., technicians of all kinds, not, and not just technicians. Everyone will essentially be able to have an, uh, an augmented. They're using, they're using it a lot at my wife's uh, work. Um, she's now, um, you know, they're using HoloLens uh, at a, in a clinical manufacturing. And, uh, you know, she's, she's having people walk her around the floor to kind of say, hey, show me this machine, show me this process. And the only real complaint is the, uh, the vertigo, but they seem to have worked on it to where it doesn't make people as sick. So it's very, very amazing. Well, not amazing, but just the logical use of the technology finally, you know. Okay. Yeah, doctors as well. I mean, it's going to blow people away. So the next one from Johan is from NBC News. It says, ransomware hackers nervous. Allege harassment from U.S. They defended their practice of holding computers for ransom after the FBI took down a major ransomware group. So this is a follow-up, no doubt, on our evil, who the U.S. and its allies momentarily took down at the end of last week. So the article says some of the most destructive ransomware hackers in the world appear to be on the edge after the U.S. reportedly took down one of their colleagues. Several ransomware gangs posted lengthy anti-U.S. screeds viewed by the NBC News on the dark web. In those uh, writings, they defended their practice of hacking organizations and holding their computers for ransom. They appear prompted by the news reported Thursday by Reuters that the FBI had successfully hacked and taken down another major ransomware group called Our Evil. While that takedown is the first of its kind made public, it's not expected to seriously curb ransomware attacks in, on the U.S. on its own. It has, however, prompted our evil's fellow hackers to publicly complain far more than they have before. One of those, called Conti, which regularly locks hospital computers and holds them for ransom, often delaying medical procedures, wrote that it would be undeterred by the U.S. and that ransomware hackers are the true victims. Here's a quote. First, an attack against some servers, which the U.S. security attributes to our evil, is another reminder of what we all know, that unilateral, extraterritorial, and bandit-mugging behavior of the United States in world affairs, the group, the group wrote. With all the endless talks in your media about ransomware is bad, we would like to point out the biggest ransomware group of all time, your federal government. 
Is there a law, even an American one, even a local one, in any county of any of the 50 states that legitimize such indiscriminate offensive action, the author wrote. Another group wrote that only time will tell who the real bad guys are here. A third complained that cybersecurity companies and the FBI were getting too involved with trying to stop ransomware. Two sides are interested. One side is company affected. Second side is ransom operator. No one else. It wrote the hack, which, by the way, that that person's clearly exposing themselves of, as having a Slavic origins in their grammar there, uh, possibly Russian. So, so the hackers who infamously attacked the Colonial Pipeline in May, leading to some gas stations in the U.S. briefly running dry, also finally touched the money from that hack for the first time since the hack on Friday, according to an analysis by Elliptic, a London company that traces Bitcoin payments. Whoever controls that money moved it over the course of several hours with small amounts being peeled off at each step. This is a common money laundering technique used to attempt to make the funds more difficult to track. Ransomware hackers' apparent nervousness may be real, but it isn't a sign that the plan to stop their attacks, says Brett Callow, an analyst at the cybersecurity firm Emisoft where he says, I suspect it's all empty posturing bravado intended to reassure any of their affiliates or other partners in crime who may be getting cold feet. Yeah, there wasn't much evidence in the article of actual nervousness. I think it was just a good headline, Tyler. I, yeah. I don't know. Well, they're calling out the hypocrisy of how the FBI themselves are. They're claiming that the government agencies of the, the you know, are are the real bad guys and the real hackers. Yeah, exactly. So I would call it like the confidence of the ransomware guys, i.e. the inverse of the nervousness. So the next one is from Amay, who found a really interesting TikTok video of Squid Game in real life in the Netherlands, where they've taken the, the big doll in the red light, green light game, full size, and plopped it up in the middle of... Uh, a town in the Netherlands and citizens can play it out in the open and win prizes if they manage to not be eliminated, so to speak, uh, from Netflix. So it seems like this is a very genius Netflix marketing campaign by putting placing this huge doll in the middle of town and having people play the game themselves and win Netflix swag. Seems a, like a genius marketing move to get people to sign up for Netflix to enjoy uh, the Squid Game. Because everyone who's watching it who doesn't know what it is is going to realize the excitement of everyone who does know what it is and then realize, I probably got it. This is probably worth paying for a Netflix subscription just to watch Squid Game. Yeah, did you see the subs data, uh, Tyler, in terms of like the, the uptick? I can't remember the exact number, but I remember scanning it and thinking that's a wild number of uh, net ads for Netflix. Yeah, it's a lot. The next one. From- I'm loving. I'm loving uh, Netflix more and more every day because of all their international programmings. I mean, they're becoming so successful in in um, foreign language films, and you know, just over the weekend, I can't tell you. I mean, I watched films from you know from Korea, from India, from South Africa, from you know. It was just. I'm getting more and more into it, and I think they're seeing such a huge success because of it as well. The the next one is from Chris Young uh, from CNN. Afghanistan hurtling towards collapse, Sweden and Pakistan say. 
Afghanistan will shor- shortly collapse into chaos unless the international community acts rapidly, Swedish and Pakistan ministers warned on Saturday. And Pakistan would know, because that's their neighbor. Oh, CNN. Afghanistan plunged into crisis after the hardline Islamist Taliban movement drove out the Western-backed government in August, triggering the abrupt end of billions of dollars in assistance to its aid-dependent economy. Here's a quote. The country is on the brink of collapse, and that collapse is coming faster than we thought. Swedish developer Development Minister Per Olsen told Reuters in Dubai. He said economic freefall could provide an environment for terrorist groups to thrive, but that Sweden would not channel money through the Taliban, instead boosting its humanitarian contributions through Afghan civil society groups. Many countries and multilateral institutions have halted development assistance, but increased humanitarian aid since August, uh, reluctant to legitimize the new Taliban rulers. Pakistani Information Minister later told Reuters that direct engagement with the Taliban was the only way to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe and called for billions of dollars of Afghan assets frozen overseas to be released. Here's a quote. Are we going to push Afghanistan into chaos or are we going to try and stabilize the country, he said in Dubai. Well, uh, many would argue, Pakistan, that you caused this shitstorm. <laughs> so when you say, are we going to push Afghanistan into chaos? Uh, well, many are saying you did. And are we going to try and stabilize it? I don't know. Is Pakistan going to try and stabilize it? Uh, it's a good question. Because a lot of those people are going to try and flee into Pakistan, which you know, which is why you secured your border in recent weeks. It sounds like a Swedish politician who wants to uh, secure funding uh, for aid abroad to me. Yes. Well, there's also this, the immigration issue, which is this could lead millions more Afghanis to flee Afghanistan if there's no food or energy or water. Notice it will come down to those issues. <laughs> it always comes down to the three basic things, food, energy, and water. And when they run out of those things, they're not going to have a choice but to think about fleeing. And that's what's if this is near and dear to Swedes, uh, because when Syria was collapsing, uh, a lot of those Syrians went up to Sweden. And many of them stayed in Germany. And Denmark said, you cannot stay here, but you can use our bridge to get to Sweden. And you can give us your watch while you cross the bridge as a, as a payment. And yes, Sweden took in a whole bunch of folks, and that caused a, a whole lot of controversy in, in Sweden and the whole region. And uh, they're very mindful to not want to see, you know, millions of Afghanistan uh, Afghanis seeking refuge through Europe. So this is, I, I assume. Craig, I wonder if you agree. This is why Sweden watches Afghanistan with a little more attention than uh, many other Western countries do. Yeah, I agree. So it's going to, yeah, let's hope. I mean, it's going to collapse. I mean, there's no question about that. So the question is, where are they going to go? And they're not going into Pakistan because Pakistan has spent the last month securing its border. It's more about the resources there and who's going to go in in the power vacuum. 
Yeah, well, the, it's not. It isn't going to be that much of a power vacuum. It's going to be the Taliban is in charge. They're just inept. Taliban with China as the sponsor, right? Right. Well, China is the one saying we're going to be your partner. Great. Well, now here's your chance. Come in and you know, you you said you you know you're you're going to be their partner. Great. Come in and be their partner. So the next one is for, oh, did I read? I didn't retweet that one out. Let's see. There we go. Tweet it out. Next one from Faraz. How, uh, sorry. Anyway, we'll skip that one. Okay. Let's go to the next one here from Lewis. Apple is being sued by a San Francisco man for 1000 $383, the exact cost of his iPhone. Apple's being sued by a San Francisco man, $1,383.13, the exact cost of his iPhone 12. He says the company refused to fix it while it was under warranty. An Apple iPhone owner is suing the exact cost of his phone, Theodore Kim, recently filed the lawsuit in San Francisco Superior Court. Kim said the company refused to repair his phone despite it being under warranty. An iPhone user in San Francisco has sued Apple for the exact cost of his phone. He filed the lawsuit. It levels the playing field so that just a simple consumer like me can sue a big company without having to worry about getting lawyers and all that other stuff. Kim told Insider in a phone interview, I feel like at least I want my day in court. The court clerk set up a trial. For 1.30 p.m. November 23rd, according to documents, Apple didn't respond to requests for comment. The phone that he's suing over was originally purchased from an, uh, from an authorized Apple seller in Vietnam in October 2020. The iPhone 12 was under Apple's warranty until October 2022. When Kim returned to the U.S. during the pandemic, he was having trouble getting the phone to read a U.S. SIM card. So he called Apple and they told him to bring it to a local Apple store. And so I brought it to the store and they said, and they sent it to the repair depot. They came back and said, yeah, we're not going to fix this because it's been tampered with, Kim said. And I said, tampered with in what way? He didn't get an answer, he said. Instead, they returned the phone, but now it has a broken SIM tray. A few weeks later, Kim filed a complaint with the Better Business Bureau Apple responded to that complaint saying the the iPhone would have been repaired if it had if it had been broken while the company had it. Apple considers this matter closed, the company said. Since Apple wouldn't fix the phone under the warranty, which Kim said was voided by the company, he offered to pay for the repair, but the company again refused. After as a final gambit, he sent an email to Apple CEO Tim Cook's email address in late June. He didn't hear back, so he turned to Google for ways to solve the problem. And I found a blog post of someone in Seattle successfully suing Apple in small claims court. In that 2012 case, a blogger brought Apple to small claims court in Washington after his 2008 MacBook Pro's graphic card died. And so I said, well, okay, why didn't I try the same avenue? He said, I kind of jokingly said, well, this is like David versus Goliath situation. We'll see what happens. Man discovers small claims court. <laughs> Eats up 
1.5 million dollars in in media coverage. <laughs> uh, Karam sends in this headline from CNBC that Chinese EV, EV maker called Xpeng launches flying car that can also operate on roads. Planned for 2024 rollout. So the Xpeng also is the le- current leader, apparently, reportedly, globally, on two-person vertical takeoff and landing fully autonomous electric air taxis, which are operational in parts of Japan and China, namely Shenzhen. I'm going to pull a Tyler. Who said this in May? Who said this in May? <laughs> so, uh, it was good. but now this new design is basically their vertical takeoff and landing electric air taxi, fully autonomous, two passenger. Now we'll have four wheels and roll down the road and use the same battery as a sort of car. So you, once you land, you can drive to your final destination. Although, why would you need to do that if you're coming from above? Maybe if there's no landing space near where your destination is, I guess. And now the next one is Amazon announces new robotics facility in the United States. And there's a video of this new robotic Amazon warehouse. Amazon Robotics continues to grow its engineering, manufacturing support, and test teams in Massachusetts. A press release stated the 350,000 square foot facility will feature corporate offices, research and development labs, and manufacturing space in addition to Amazon Robotics' current site in North Reading, Massachusetts. Together, these two facilities serve up as the epicenter of the company's robotics innovation. A primary focus in the facility will be the manufacturing of Amazon Robotics mobile drive units. And since 2012, the company has added over a million new jobs worldwide while developing more than 350,000 drive units, each one of those units doing the jobs of several people, by the way. These drive units and other robotics technologies work closely with employees to help safely, reliably fulfill customers' orders. In addition to opening the new robotics facility in Westboro, Amazon is hiring 1,500 new full and part-time operators uh for the site in Massachusetts. And what's up next in the tweets is Poppy sends in this one from CNBC that China is pushing to develop its own chips, but the country can't do it without foreign tech. Yes, CNBC, welcome to the conversation. They need ASML uh from the Netherlands if they want to get into chips. And ASML is under very strict uh, guidance from its ally in America not to provide that technology to China and basically China's going to find it very very difficult to do anything in semiconductors without the assistance of America's allies and America knows that welcome to the conversation CNBC China's reliance on foreign firms in the semiconductor supply chain could make domestic giants vulnerable to geopolitical issues as was the case with Huawei yep exactly right You're only five months behind on this conversation, CNBC. The next one from The Atlantic, the headline simply says, Stop Shopping. America needs you to buy less junk. And as usual with The Atlantic, they write very beautiful, thoughtful pieces by very intelligent writers. 
but they're incredibly long, lengthy diatribes uh, that we can't not really share here. They're more kind of narrative in their format. Um, but it says that lately, news stories about the supply chain tend to start in similar ways. The reader is dropped into an American container port, maybe Long Beach, California, or Savannah, Georgia, full to bustling, full to bursting with trailer-sized steel boxes loaded with toilet paper and exercise bikes and future Christmas presents. Some of the containers have gone untouched for weeks or months, waiting for their contents to be trucked to a distribution centers on the horizon. Dozens of additional vessels are anchored and idle, waiting for their turn in the port. More ships keep arriving. Everyone involved, sailors, longshoremen, customs clerks, truckers, works as fast and as hard as they possibly can. It's not fast or hard enough. The supply chain, as you know, is having a bad time. That's been true since the pandemic began. Shortages in consumer goods have persisted far beyond analysts' initial expectations, then beyond their subsequent revision, etc., etc. So you get the idea. The Atlantic filling everybody in on the ever-worsening supply chain issues. Oops, didn't mean to delete that one. The next one is from... Joe Williams about a fully autonomous race car, which goes 150 miles per hour fully autonomously. And now you can have Formula One races against engineering teams without human drivers. There will be cars. I, in hmm? I was uh, on the Formula SAE team. That was where we did a motorcycle engine and then did a 600 cc motorcycle engine and did the formula sae that was so much fun but uh this is a whole new level it says there will be cars at the indianapolis motor speedway on saturday but no driver in sight as racing teams mark a milestone in autonomous vehicle development and ken has this one from the wall street journal it's an opinion piece that says lawmakers plan to tank the startup economy a measure aimed at big tech would curb innovation, risk-taking, and entrepreneurship by small companies. From somebody named um, Bet Bettina Hine. Who are you, Bettina Hine? Let's find out with a little Google search. Bettina Hine is a serial software entrepreneur that has built tech in Europe and U.S. From born in Germany. Uh, and appears to be quite a young lady, actually now living in Switzerland. And so it says, a measure aimed at big tech would curb innovation. And what, what is this measure aimed at big tech that would curb innovation? And why is Ms. Hine writing this for the Wall Street Journal? Thriving entrepreneurship is crucial to a strong and growing economy and especially to post-COVID recovery. But the initiative to take the personal and financial risk of launching a company is now under threat. The Platform Competition and Opportunity Act, introduced in June by Representatives Jeffries in New York and Ken Buck in Colorado, would restrict, and in some cases ban, the acquisition of startups by larger companies. Oh, you actually have a good point here. Ostensibly, the goal is to foster competition by preventing dominant online platforms from expanding their sway through acquisitions, but the legislation risks hurting the startups it aims to protect. You actually have a good point here, Miss uh, Miss Hine. Research in recent years has demonstrated that new business account dis, dis, disproportionately for the in, 
What? Research in recent years has demonstrated that new businesses account disproportionately for the innovations that drive productivity growth, economic growth, and new job creation. But a third of new businesses fail by the second year, half by their fifth. Fragile startups face three principal fates, fail, go public, or be acquired, with failure the most common. Many entrepreneurs dream of taking their companies public, but most startups never achieve that scale that's required. Acquisition, therefore, is the most likely avenue for successful entrepreneurs and their employees to realize their value of their creation. In a typical year, more than 10 times as many startups are acquired as go public, according to a recent report by Silicon Valley Bank. Nearly 60% of startups expect to be acquired. Acquisition has also enabled startup investors to reclaim their capital, realize any gains, and recycle their money into the next generation of startups. As a serial entrepreneur, I understand the threat of legalization poses to America's startup ecosystem. Yep. She has a fair point, but it's only limiting the big, big, big tech companies. So it shouldn't really limit even the majority of acquisitions. But I doubt she's going to be that transparent in making her argument. So the next one is from David Crace that the Center for Disease Control publishes rates of COVID cases and deaths by vaccine brand. So now you can know. Messy. Tenure's Jeopardy. Yeah, could be. Let's see. Do they share it here? The rates of COVID cases and deaths by vaccination status were gathered from health departments. Um, rates for vaccination were dramatically reduced at 3.4, 1.34. Oh, okay. Yeah, we have the data here. We've got the data. Uh-oh, somebody already saw the article. I already tweeted it. You're disqualified if you've if you've if you're looking at the data that I just tweeted to the Tech News Twitter account. So what is the rates for vaccinated people who were what? When it came to age group peak rates, blah blah blah, the older than 80, the COVID with that in mind. Probably a bad idea, Tyler. Rates for vaccinated people were dramatically reduced at 3.14 for Johnson & Johnson. Rates for what? Oh, the death rate. There we go. The death... Hold on. The death rate... Okay, here we go. Okay, here we go. Here it is. Interestingly, the agency also broke out case and death rates by vaccine product at the peak of the latest wave, unvaccinated people made up the greatest percentage of COVID cases at an incident rate of uh, 736 by 100,000. So 736. That's a weird way to do the... They're doing it per 100,000. Okay, so which company had the lowest rate of deaths yeah which vaccine has the lowest rate of deaths per 100,000 people hold on Moderna Johnson and Johnson is the highest 
one that's least used is the lowest. You have to get the order. There's three. Moderna, Pfizer, Johnson & Johnson. Which is the best and worst? Give, give us your best, second, and worst. If you can get the correct order of the three. Johnson Highest and death Johnson, rate, Moderna, Pfizer, lowest and Pfizer. death rate, uh, yeah, Johnson Johnson. Same. Go share. What was it, Cheryl? Highest death rate, Pfizer, lowest death rate, Johnson and Johnson. No. Highest okay. Johnson and Johnson. Yep. Um, lowest probably Moderna. You win, Sunamani. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Next up is from Amay. The GOP calls for Fauci investigation, resignation uh, after NIH admits funding gain-of-function research. Okay, and scientists use a tiny brain implant to help a blind teacher see letters again. We've seen these headlines before of brain implants to help people see again. Scientists, yeah, a former science teacher who's been blind for 16 years became able to see letters, discern objects, edges, and even play a Maggie Simpson video game. BCI connected to a pair of glasses, and the pair of glasses has a camera. So now her brain is connected to the little camera in her glasses. And that's super interesting. Because those glasses is sending a signal to her brain of what the glasses are seeing. This is the beginnings of the matrix, y'all. Because that, could, that camera could run through a processor that then adds additional information. Like data, yep, like her email. Digital signal processing overlaid onto the signal. Here comes the matrix, y'all. Glasses. And it's going to answer so many of the hardware issues because everyone's saying, you know, OVR, the quality is not going to be there. You know, the resolution's not going to be there. And no one wants to wear something heavy. Well, if you just wear a necklace or something and it's jacking into your, your brain, no problem. Viruses could be harnessed by... This is from The Telegraph in the UK. The headline reads... Um, viruses could be harnessed by bioterrorists, warns leading chemical weapons expert. Hamish de Breton Gordon says bad actors may be inspired to synthetically replicate diseases like COVID-19 as bioweapons. Oh. And this just came out over the weekend. Oh, wow. Why didn't anybody tell me about this? Research into... Oh huh? This is totally novel, guys. Like, I don't think anybody ever thought of this. Research into viruses with pandemic potential should be policed in the same way as work on atomic bombs or sarin gas, according to British Army former chemical and nuclear weapons chief. Ham Hamish de Breton Gordon, now a biosecurity fellow at Cambridge University, told The Telegraph that the impact of COVID-19 could inspire bad actors to explore the potential of viruses as bioweapons. We, here's a quote. We must not sit back and allow the next pandemic to happen, he said. Sadly, bad actors will be galvanized by COVID-19 and with the ease of synthetic biology. 
could try to replicate its awfulness for their own gains. The chances of a deadly accident occurring is also too risky to ignore. Colonel de Breton Gordon, alongside MP Tobias Elwood, chair of the Parliamentary Defense Committee, said the risks must be better policed, either by extending the work of the OPCW, Organization for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, to cover bioweapons or by setting up a new organization. The pair also want the World Health Organization's powers beefed up, and as do many global health security experts. Others have called for a new body to mimic the International Atomic Energy Agency, which monitors nuclear weapons. Pressure has ramped up globally for better biosafety and security in the wake of the pandemic. While there's no proof that a lab leak had anything to do with the doubt break, and most experts believe a natural origin is more likely, the debate has shown a light on laboratories working around the world on dangerous pathogens. Their work aims to study the threat to understand and mitigate it, but experts point out that regulation can be patchy. While there are international guidelines and standards, it is up to nation states to regulate the work. Biosafety levels, which run from 1 to 4, monitor how safe a lab is and which pathogens it can study. Biosecurity is more about protecting the lab from external bad actors seeking access to its work. The explosion of gene editing technologies, which can now be bought by mail order, also needs to be monitored, experts argue. This week, U.S. evolutionary engineer Professor Kevin Esvelt, among the first to build a CRISPR-based gene editing drive, who has described waking up in cold sweats about the potential of the technology, argued that research into building or editing viruses should stop altogether. Tyler, can we go down that meeting you had? A uh, very lucky, you know, or I, I would say privileged meeting about smallpox. One last paragraph. Here's a quote. Many... Physicists who contributed to the Manhattan Project lived to see nuclear proliferation threaten the world. For pandemics, the critical experiments have not yet been performed. I implore every scientist, funder, and nation working in this field, please stop, he wrote in the Washington Post. However, scientists said the, world, scientists said the work was crucial. For example, if we stop studying viruses that spill over from animals to humans in secure labs, that does not make the natural spillover any less likely and leaves us far less prepared for when it happens. Professor Stuart Neal, a virologist at King's College London, said, There are two questions here. One, did COVID actually come from lab? Two, how can we make laboratories safer for working on viruses that have pandemic risk and prevent the risk of a failure pan of a future pandemic that is caused by a lab leak? I think some sort of international agreement where we can come by a set of absolutely required standards is essential. And I love the line that uh, the evolu U.S. evolutionary engineer professor, Kevin Esvelt, <laughs> who was the first to build a CRISPR-based gene editing drive, who has described waking up in cold sweats about the potential for the technology. <laughs> uh, yes, but so also has George Church and Craig Venner, who are the two biggest brains in the field of genetic engineering, who I had a meeting with, along with Elon Musk at SpaceX headquarters one weekend in their boardroom. And it was, as Chris correctly said, a very privileged gathering of billionaires, myself being the only non-billionaire in the room. And it was only 15 people in the room for the weekend. And uh, they were all tech billionaires in the audience. Larry Page from Google, uh, Sean Parker, 
um, who created Napster, first president of Facebook, and a lot of other super geniuses. And Craig and George, as the as the gods of genetic engineering, said, hey, look, we got a real problem on our hands. That the price of doing genetic engineering is following the same curve as computer engineering, meaning it used to be only big governments had access to computers and doing computer engineering. And then it went to big universities and big businesses and then small universities and small businesses and then super small schools. And then in 1995, there was the PC revolution and everyone could do computer engineering and some bad actors made computer viruses. Well, that exact same scenario is happening with genetic engineering, where it used to be just governments, and then now it's big universities. And actually now, now, in 2021, it's now small universities and small businesses. And we're ju- the next step is the PC revolution, where everyone gets a kit for $300 to do genetic engineering at home. That's on our doorstep. And the problem is then you'll have bad actors doing genetic engineering to make real genetic viruses, not computer viruses, that are contagious, just like computer viruses. And the one that they will likely make is a smallpox variation that's airborne that will have about a 50% mortality rate. So think COVID, but if you get it, you have a 50% chance of dying, and it affects all ages. In fact, you could engineer it to be more targeted to young people, if you so chose. So that's coming, and there's nothing anyone can do about it. And the idea that you could make uh, an agency to monitor this genetic engineering that's going on all over the planet, well, now you need to understand David Evans at the University of Alberta, not a big university, not a prestigious engineering department, genetic engineering department intentionally proved by using nothing other than mail-order genetic material, online ordered genetic sequences, little snippets of code that were sent through the, the post office to his lab at the University of Alberta. You know that prestigious university you and all your friends talk about, University of Alberta. And he assembled the code in his lab and he brought back horsepox which is genetically nearly identical to smallpox. Equal difficulty. Using nothing but mail-order material that anyone has access to and the recipe, which was publicly available on the internet. So is the smallpox recipe is available publicly on the internet. So he did it in his lab five years ago. Nearly six years ago. It has become incredibly easier and cheaper to do it in since the five years ago that he did that. Meaning, pretty much anyone who set out to do so could do it with smallpox today. So, Tyler, you're basically saying that Dick Cheney was right just maybe a decade or so early, maybe more than that. I don't know what he said. Dick Cheney, after 9-11, wanted to get everybody in the United States uh, vaccinated for smallpox because he was concerned about something like this, you know. And uh, he was kind of, um, uh, I guess, overruled because there was a concern of, you know, uh, maybe that was a little bit too much. And there was a concern that there would be, um, once you start vaccinating 
people. There'll be people who get, you know, reactions to it and uh, some people who will get it and whatever, and who knows. Um, but nonetheless, I mean, given what you're saying, it's, he might have be this point, you know, just late that we should just vaccinate the population who, who wants to get vaccinated. This wouldn't be something you mandate um, because no one's going to, okay. But if people want that vaccine, if, if they're concerned about that you're being right, people want may want to get that vaccine. No. You, you know, a booster, a booster, or not even a booster, because mo- most people don't even have it, because we don't even vaccinate, we don't vaccinate for smallpox anymore, well, because you, it was erratic. Yeah, yeah, and and you could you could preemptively take a vaccine that might help. Uh, the problem is you don't know exactly how the engineer is engineering the virus and how effective your vaccine is to a virus that you haven't even seen yet. Oh yeah, for for an unknown pathogen, yeah, correct. So we all have that look to forward to. And hello from my private paradise in Thailand. But Tyler, you know, in the example you just used of the with the horsepox, mm-hmm. you also just why maybe the government should have a backdoor to follow people's emails so they can find out who's ordering this stuff because who's up to no good. Yes. That might be the best argument anyone could make for why governments should have full unfettered access to all communications. However, I don't know that that would actually stop it. Because you... you could have an individual doing this in their lab and there's other than other than them downloading the kind of genetic map of smallpox which they could have done 10 years ago it's been on the internet for a very long time so there's already millions of people that have downloaded that so i i don't know how you you could well, you well, could you could see their internet traffic, or more importantly, they would have to order genetic material from multiple different labs, and different sources. Tyler, they, like, prob- they probably have built in um, back doors on the actual sequencer. To be honest, you know, Thermo Fisher. Uh, I don't know who makes the sequencers, but you know, I'm I'm sure they've built that layer in. You know that they've probably got some hot spots that they know to watch just like every every copy or every printer you know when you copy a dollar bill the the copier knows and it, and it like records that and uh it you know printers have micro dots on them to uh, allow for fast identification when documents get printed so i, I think they've thought this hopefully they've thought this through <laughs> okay i hope yeah let's hope so the next one is, well, what if it, by the way, what if China decides to do it? What if... Then we're fucked. Right. This is my point is, we, you, we're assuming that a bad actor is a, you know, a, a school shooter it's kid some guy, yeah. in Colorado. Nation, yeah, if it's a state actor. It and what if it's, what, and what if it's genetically engineered not to impact, you know, genetically Chinese people? I'll see you, Tyler. I miss you, bud. I wonder if anyone's doing a big uh, DNA database sample of their population 
Oh, the New York Times reported China's doing that. Oh, never mind. Forget that. Forget it. The Olympics. Yeah, right. <laughs> never mind. Never mind the New York Times article that China's doing this with its own population. I'm sure it's. I'm sure it's unrelated. So the next one's from Ken. That um, no, we just read the Ken one. The next one is a Ch- the China one. It says it's from Insider Asia. It says if China's economy keeps stumbling. It won't just take down Beijing. The whole world will collapse with it. For decades, China has relied on cheap labor and eye-popping amounts of debt handed out by government-owned banks to fuel economic growth, pouring money into massive apartment developments, factories, bridges, and other projects at lightning speed. Now the country needs people to actually use and pay for everything that's been built. Chinese President Xi Jinping uh, must strike a delicate balance between eliminating China's crushing debt and maintaining consumer confidence. A misstep could spur global chaos, both economic and political. <clears throat> Since the spring, Beijing has canceled IPOs, fined tech companies billions for antitrust violations, forced down China's forced forcibly shut down China's entire for-profit education industry and sent CEOs running for the exits to avoid the government's ire. Even more dire, the Chinese megadeveloper Evergrande recently started missing payments on its more than $300 billion in debt, shaking global markets. The convulsions have woken the world up to startling new possibility that Beijing may be willing to allow some of its private corporate behemoths to collapse in a bid to reshape the economic model that made China a superpower. The upheaval Spanning multiple industries and vast swaths of the country is the result of one giant issue, China's inability to borrow or buy its way out of its current economic crisis. For decades, the country relied on cheap labor. And I read that paragraph. Now the country needs people to actually uh, buy and use all the stuff. As a result, China finds itself stuck with a system that is overbuilt and over-indebted. Take the country's $52 trillion property market, of which the Evergrande mess is the poster child. With money easy to borrow, real estate speculation became a popular way to store and build wealth for China's young middle class. One academic described this model to me colorfully as an addition to real estate cocaine, an addiction to real estate cocaine. It has also been called a treadmill to hell. As the government now attempts to deflate the real estate bubble without bursting it, it has been forced to prepare the country for a period of slower growth and belt tightening. And to make matters worse, China is also facing an energy crisis fueled by skyrocketing coal prices, as well as working age population that is getting old without enough resources to, re- to retire on. In the face of all these obstacles, Beijing has made dubious choice. Instead of continuing to open the economy to spur growth, the Chinese Communist Party is closing it. President Xi, under President Xi, Chinese socialism is reverting to a model that seems that model not seen in decades with tighter state controls over much of the economy. That's why you're seeing Beijing cancel massive IPOs and level entire industries. Economists expect this ideological shift to slow growth even more, which in turn will make China's attempts to transform its economies that much more precarious. Here's a quote. I think Xi is incredibly ideological and he is Focused on his legacy, says Charlene Shu, a de- anal- analyst at Autonomous Research. He really wants to sh- reshape China and put it on the global stage, and that does require a reset from the way we've been doing things previously. 
It says the transition from open market to state control won't be easy to manage, and there's much at stake for all of us. If Beijing fails at its ambitious plan, it could set off shockwaves that would crater the global financial system, slow trade, and devastate business worldwide. The resulting chaos and the crisis of faith in the CCP that would accompany it could lead to social instability in China, spurring the central government to place an even tighter grip on society. In short, Beijing is walking an economic high wire act trying to replace its economic model with something unknown. In the process, the weight of its old debt-ridden system is causing China to wobble, and if the country falls, it could take the rest of the world with it. $52 trillion? That, like, that's... I mean, I guess that makes sense because, right, we're we're talking about a fourteen trillion dollar yearly GDP. So that we're talking about four or five years of their their economic, you know, growth. So, how much is our real estate market worth? Ken, I'm just curious. Sorry, I, I don't know off the top of my head, but I was about to say that what Tyler just described, like, oh, is otherwise one hundred one hundred fifty six. What? No, it should be trillions. What's that number? Ten trillion. Ten point five trillion. Our our real estate industry. Oh, maybe a yearly. But Tyler, Tyler was going to say you just just described, I guess, what was called steep decline, right? That's why it's your moniker, right? <laughs> yeah. It's a good point. <clears throat> the <clears throat> the. China is likely to stumble, and by the way, it's also likely to stumble in a, for a reason that Lynette Lopez, the author of this article, doesn't highlight, which is there are countries that would like to see China stumble, that are rooting for China to stumble, and might even be pulling strings behind the scenes to exacerbate while Uncle Xi's walking the tightrope as he's doing in the main image of this article it shows him literally walking a tightrope like a circus act over flames and there might chris i just just looked something up with the answer your question it's only even partial give you the sense Uh, a couple of years ago just the commercial real estate market in the u.s not even including residential was about 16 trillion so the the point though is you have it might be the case that some countries might be rooting for China to fail. And this is not so terribly dissimilar from Japan in the 80s, where Japan became the biggest economic thing on, you know, for a hot minute. <clears throat> Seemed like it was going to take over America. People were learning Japanese in America, for those who don't remember that short period of time, where Japan bought Times Square and the price of land in Tokyo uh, near the uh, Royal Ginza. in Ginza was worth more than all of, you know, California. It was just, it was getting truly absurd. And the, it was a bubble and it popped and China's a bubble and it appears to be popping. And, and you notice the, Jap- the Japanese stock market has never recovered, by the way. Correct. It's J- Japan has still not fully recovered from that. I was there during it. I was there during the pe- when the bubble was at the peak and during the popping. And and I work in Hong Kong, you know, until relatively recently, until COVID. And China has a massive real estate bubble. 
and it appears that it's not sustainable and it's they're going to try and deflate it without breaking it that's very difficult to do especially at their size so you also have other countries who are rooting for china to fail and are going to shake the tightrope that g is trying to walk on so that makes it all the more impossibly difficult so um and the point is, if if Xi falls off the tightrope, which he's likely to do, um, that means all of the, you know, Old Navy, Walmart, all of this consumer, you know, crap that America got a bit itself addicted to, um, you're going to see some intense inflation going on in the U.S., a bit of hyperinflation. And to that point... Jack Dorsey, perhaps the, one of the biggest newses that nobody's reporting today, because we've gone through all the tweets, and essentially we have like a couple left, but the none of the mainstream is reporting that Jack Dorsey did a tweet over the weekend, a very important tweet, one of the most, maybe the most important tweet he's ever done, which simply says, and I'm pulling up and I'm going to retweet it right now, um... Here it is. Just tweeted. Very, very short. Hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. And so here's why that's so important. If hyperinflation happens, uh, yeah, as he says, it's going to change everything. Right. It'll likely cause everyone to throw money into Bitcoin for one, which is what, partly why he's so big into Bitcoin. There's a whole bunch of things that will happen. And um, he says it's happening with a with a with a declaration of certitude that is uncharacteristic of Jack Dorsey. So, but there's he know he actually knows that it's happening, and people are going to say, "Well, how could he know?" Well, it's because he owns a fi a fintech startup called Square, which is the POS systems at hundreds of thousands of mom and pop shops where they type in how much money they charge for their products on a little POS system. So he, more than any data source on the planet, would be the first person to see the actual data of actual hyperinflation setting in. And to add to that, the Keith Raboy, who was the a chief officer of Square, this app, at the beginning, took to Twitter to say this Square was engineered from day one to detect and, pre and predict precisely this. And he, this is the guy, Keith Raboy, one of the world's best investors, startup investors, tech investors, was at PayPal, left PayPal to go to Square, to do Square with Jack, as a C-suite executive, and Keith Raboy is saying, we engineered Square precisely to predict hyperinflation. And Jack did a tweet saying, hyperinflation is going to change everything. It's happening. He has the data that nobody else has. Nearly nobody. And no one's written this article. I should also point out, I mean, even with a single sentence that Jeffrey Gunlack, who's 
uh, somebody I used to work with, uh, um, TCW, considered one of the uh, top investors in fixed income or bonds, you know, uh, in the United States, tweeted out, and I think he was making a point about the same thing, that he just paid $4.85 a gallon for gas. Well, we we've seen we saw that last year with the uh, with the Fred. Um, that, that's the I'm sorry, I don't forget what it stands for, but it's, you saw the money supply literally go parabolic, so you knew that hyperinflation was going to come. And then my my other question for you know economist types like Ken is, with this kind of potential downturn in China looming, what kind of De-inflation, deflationary pressures are we now dealing with? Are we going to have to stout now start pumping more money into the global economy? Like, have we already decoupled enough from China to where we're going to survive this or what? Because fifty-two trillion dollars, I mean, that's that's dumbfounded. Like, well, that, that well, has me dumbfounded. I, we, because... I, don't, I don't think we're about to decouple, but by the way, that that may be a counterbalance to some other inflationary things. So, you know, who knows? Um, uh, I, I would also, by the way, speaking of when to get into this, speaking about hyperinflation, be very concerned about some of these big spending bills, you know, in, in Washington, uh, you know, because you know, that, 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 that's a problem. That's going to be a problem for the dollar. Um, and by the way, Tyler, I don't know, because uh, whether you, I don't think we, just, we covered it uh, tonight. But um, and I don't know if it's going to pass. I don't know if anything's going to pass. But at the end of the day, but one of the things that they're considering now, in order to get the the the, the tough vote that they need to get because of uh, particularly uh, Senator Sinema in Arizona, the new the new tax proposal, which is very different than the original original Biden tax proposal, is going to tax the accreted unrealized capital gains of billionaires. So what I that, saw that. Uh, have is is have like the people like the Zuckerbergs and the Bezos yep. and whatever Everyone. have to now sell their stock. Right. Okay. No, no, not not just them. Tax. No, no, no. no th- this is this is fucking the most uh, holy shit comment. No, it's only for billionaires now. It's only okay. they're supposed okay. to impact. Yeah. Is it w- under? What, did they actually give an actual number like people with a net? Uh, revenue or net, net income over X yes, amount. It's, it's, it's a net, net, net revenue over a hundred, you know, re- over a hundred million in revenue, at, or or an asset size that's in the billions. You know, here's what's you know, of, here's you know, the here's one of a myriad of big problems with that. Uh, we have it in Sweden. This exists in Sweden, by the way. So, and the problem. This is why uh, startups lagged behind elsewhere. Because your stock options, let's say I want to hire you to come to my startup. I create a clubhouse clone like everybody else on the planet has. Not that I'm going to do that. But just as an example, I make a startup in, and now, well, in this case, it wouldn't apply because the, my, my employees aren't going to become uh, billionaires overnight. But the idea is if you're taxed on unrealized uh, earnings on your stock options, you, you're going to have to pay taxes on stock options that you haven't even... No, 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 no. So, to, to, as, as far as I know, and we haven't seen the actual proposal, it's not going to be us uh, uh, unrealized gains on stock options, which, as you know, under U.S. tax law, you don't get taxed until they're exercised. Right. They're talking about actual stock that they're in possession of. They own okay. the stock Okay, that's different. Okay. Option. 
So you have unrealized, you know, they have unrealized gains. I got you. So when you look at the, the, the yeah. I got you because people are throwing money into the, the markets and holding it there as a f- alternative to keeping it in banks. And then they're, I can see why Yellen wants to tax it. Okay. <clears throat> so then, then that's going to be a hot issue in the next 48 hours. There's going to be a whole lot of debate around that one. That's what I'm saying. I don't know. That's what I'm saying. I'm this passes at the end of the day. But they're desperate to, for political reasons to say they, they want to win. They want they want to not say that they couldn't get anything passed. So um, who knows what they're going to do? Well, then there's the then there's the six hundred you know the uh, six hundred dollar or higher bank accounts get uh, fully monitored now. No, right? they've already they've already increased that to ten thousand, and that that, okay. that may end up dropping out altogether. But it's now ten thousand. Yeah. Okay. Um... We'll pause there and meet again in five hours and uh, take a little Subway sandwich break. This was a good one. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. 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 Thank you.